Support for this podcast comes from Codex Digital. The Codex workflow is an end-to-end camera-to-post system that makes production easier and more efficient than ever before. Find out more at codexdigital.com. Listening to the RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting edge imaging. Hello, and welcome to the RC podcast number 99. I'm Mike Seymour from the uh, Central FX Guide Tech Compound, and I'm joined in the uh, in the suite here with Jason Wingrove. Hello, how are, you, how are we? What have you been up to lately, Jace? Hmm? What have you been up to lately? Uh, shooting on, uh, sort of, I suppose my first non tinkering, my own fun shoot with the Epic, just the first sort of actually paid gig, which was interesting. A couple of little, learned a few things. What'd you learn? Uh, I think on a Steadicam, I think I want to power the Epic by itself and not go off the Steadicam sled because unfortunately I couldn't replicate it, the issue, but we actually had you know really long takes like four or five minute or six or seven minute takes and a couple of them just stopped halfway through and of course you just keep going dialogue there's no kind of unless you switch on the uh, on off beep thing on the camera there's nothing to say i've cut now it just you know you can go on for another two minutes if you're on a steady cam everyone's more looking at where they're going everyone's looking at the the doorway they're not going to trip over or the window they're not going to bump into they're listening to the guy talking and I don't know, somewhere along the line there, a couple of takes got um, uh, got cut halfway through. And I'm just not not sure where that came from. Oh, that but, sucks. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, we had other multiple, we had multiple takes, so we were okay. But uh, it was just odd that a couple of takes dropped out. I can only imagine the fact that we were powered by the sled and, I don't know, low voltage, some sort of something, something triggered a, a cut on the camera. I'm not sure yet, but uh, I don't know. I wish I could. It was such a quick shoot that I couldn't. Uh, we didn't have time to. We weren't aware of it at the time, first of all, but we also couldn't really. We didn't have the chance to go back and debug it because we didn't know it was an issue until we were, you know, we were gone. We we're on the plane. So well, I'm sorry. But yeah, no. But still, it was good. Good. Good fun. Well, look, uh, this week on the show in the Red Room, we appropriately have the film Red Dog. We actually have two interviews with the film Red Dog where we pose the question, is it okay to do an indie film on a, uh, on a red camera? And I'd actually further say that I'm going to ask you after that interview whether you think it's okay to do it on a non-epic red camera. But um, that's mm. all coming up later in the Red Room. We're speaking both to the DOP and the post house that did the effects. That's an independent Australian film. It's hugely successful in Australia. You may not have heard of it overseas, but the lessons that are learnt from that film, I mean, it's made uh, tons of money, obviously, because theatrically it um, uh, has gone very well. It's gone very well in a way that mm. uh, that films seldom do these days in Australia. It's hit both uh, box office, but also just uh, critics love it to death. Yeah, I think it will do well, well, well. It's just won a couple of international competitions, I think literally just yesterday or today. So it's just starting to filter out around the world. But it's going to be one of those films, good, simple, honest film that I think is going to definitely, you know, it's going to do the rounds. Well, one of the reasons I, I thought it would be a terrific thing to cover in the Red Room is because, quite frankly, I think a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast would, you know, feel themselves very accomplished if they produced a Red Dog film Mm. because it's uh, 
creatively sort of independent film, um, but by the same token, it's uh, you know really found an audience. So that's all coming up later in the Red Room. Uh, we also got news and stuff, and this is our 99th show, so we're also uh, going to tell you what's coming up in our 100th show, uh, which I joked about last time on the uh, podcast, but we're actually going to give you the details, and it's actually a pretty interesting um, uh, well, interesting show we have in store for you. But uh, before we do that, we are going to play our incredibly expensive to the newsroom desk music theme song thing. And now, the RC News. It's not a huge, uh, not a huge news week or a couple of weeks since the last episode, really. Um, apart from the passing of Steve Jobs, which is a lot of has been spoken about, really, and uh, I'm still stunned beyond words every time I go to apple.com and look at his face it's uh, quite uh, quite a stark um, image these days to, to look at that amazing portrait of him but uh, yeah there's not much I can say that hasn't been said but uh, it, that was yeah a bit of a shock well in other news around the traps um, and, and again taking another way from the Steve Jobs thing though sort of perhaps now um, something that we have absorbed a little bit um I wanted to discuss, uh, I guess, something that's not very surprising at all, but obviously relevant to this podcast, which is the the complete absence of anyone actually making any film cameras. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, we've sort of touched on the fact, like, Ari had to have uh, success with Alexa because they seriously were not making any film cameras. But um, literally news uh, this week is that Burns and Sawyer, who have just been a massive film rental company for, for forever and make their own gear, ma- massive um, icon of the industry from, you know, since forever, uh, are basically uh, having an auction to sell off every single, what not just cameras, but every, it looks like every single item in their entire premises that is in, in any way related to film. Projectors, um, you know, post gear, you name it. Uh, it's uh, a massive sell-off of every single one of their um, inventory involved in film, basically, um, to quote the, one of their press releases. Yeah, motion pictures are no longer being captured on film in sufficient numbers to warrant keeping any film cameras in stock at all. So uh, there is uh, a link in the show notes, obviously, to the uh, the auction, uh, obviously happening in the States. Uh, TigerGroupLLC.com is the auction house, and obviously there's a lot of gear on the block there. Uh, you can go there and see some of the listings. But it's just obviously... Yeah, it's a, non, a not surprising sign of the times. That It's interesting to see a major rental house, though, make this move because uh, well, there's a lot of rental houses still making some money out of film, but uh, these guys are... You know, okay, so Ari, Panavision and, and Arton have all ceased making film cameras, but in a story about that that um, uh, I saw, we can probably reference it in the, in the show notes, they had an interview or they spoke to uh, the VP of cameras at Ari and he said that the... Utilization of film cameras in the rental companies is about uh, thirty to forty percent in the US at the moment. Obviously, no one's buying new cameras, but mm. they're not renting the ones that are there either. So, you know, it'd be nuts to uh, to make more. Yeah, look, it's just you know, if regardless of your preference as a DP or as you know a director, the push from the producer side to not shoot film is pretty big, at least you know in my circles and film circles here and you know in all my contacts i have not you know the the push from the dollar side is pretty insurmountable you know it's pretty hard as a director or a dp to try and get film on your on your show uh basically because you know dollar you know money talks 
Yeah. Somebody said that um, obviously, you know, this was related to, or and it is, uh, Kodak and their plummeting share price. But a point I made, and I think it was on uh, it was on somebody else's blog, and it's somebody we really like, one of the the guys, um, is that Kodak's main problem isn't just this problem of film on or not filming on film, mm. um, it's projection. Yeah. Because if you think about it, a hell of a lot more Print projection stock. stock than used than... Yeah, than stock, intermediate stock, sound stock, everything that used to be part of the uh, chemical process of getting a film on the screen is just is rapidly going... I talked about this a couple of apps ago, that, uh, um, that rapidly, you know, cinemas are being swapped over to digital, just obviously so they can cope with, deep, you know, 3D and be, be 3D capable. Because I don't know what your shooting ratio the... used to be like on film, but let's say it was 25 to 1, which on film is pretty bloody generous. But Yep. Uh, okay, well, you're going to make a hell of a lot more than 25 prints of the film, right? You're going to make thousands. So the amount of stock used in print run is vastly more than the stock used in, mm. in filming, as it were. Yeah. So it's digital projection that's really hurting Kodak. But, of course, at the capture point... Um, yeah, I mean, you don't rent. And, and the only the other thing is, well, I think there's two things. One is the, just the cost, but also the other, it's the convenience of being able to get the darn stuff into the post pipeline for time. Because, you know, when you, we had to finish and drop the stock and then get it processed and then get it run through Telsony and then get access. Yeah. These days you just grab it and go. But also one of their major, obviously, what kicked them off is was cameras, you know, they're doing, and they primarily were making in the camera department we're doing point and shoots and that market is evaporating faster than anything you know mm. when you can have eight megapixels in your pocket now um high definition you know high definition video in your pocket well now it's funny you should say that because i wanted to actually bring this point up with you and <clears throat> changing from the news slightly um did you see there was a post done uh on dv i'm going to say dvinfo.net of a side-by-side comparison between the new iPhone 4S and the Canon 5D Mark II. Now, I, I swore I was not going to discuss cameras on iPhones because it was... I When joke. I saw this, I said, really? We're going to talk about this? But, you know, there, it's, there, there is a well, conversation have, here to be they had. Have, they have improved the quality of the HD 1920x1080 capture on the iPhone Yeah. to a point that you have to ask, obviously, no, you're going to use it for like as the main camera on a commercial or anything. But my question to you, though, is... Is it getting close enough that if I want to stick a camera in the corner of a car for a witness camera for something, I mean, like a reality TV show even, and I need an extra camera, I mean, would you... What do you consider the video quality mm. like? Would you... Oh, look... Like you're on set and you want a camera down low. There's issues with an iPhone, obviously. I mean, but if you, I, I guess if you're saying comparing to, you know, GoPro, That's not GoPro. Yeah. yeah. I think it's actually probably more filmic than a GoPro just because it's just quite a nice sort of natural lens size. It does have quite a nice, you know, look. There's going to be issues if your rig has a lot of movement in it probably because I guess you're up against the... The rolling shutter we've seen, um, I'm not sure if that's actually improved with the 4S over the 4, but when we've passed through, we've seen, you know, the Jello on the iPhone is, is quite horrid. So if that's an issue, then obviously GoPro is going to be your, your, more, more, of the, more of the go because but, but I don't even said, remember GoPro seeing has Jell-O a on really, GoPro. really wide yeah. lensing. It's quite wide lens, so and it, it looks like a POV life. camera already, less but, of a rig shot. But less it's of a, true, but it's designed for for high sun conditions like it's designed for sports and so i find the gopro collapses when you go into low light conditions which of course is almost the exact opposite of how they set up the yeah the iphone because it can get a bit noisy well yeah yeah well they both can i guess but Mm. but i think the the threshold for the iphone seems better set for 
normal lighting conditions where the GoPro is set for surfing and skiing and yeah but I think it, it sort of stops the the usage kind of stops at anything above sort of rig cameras really because it's it's not something you as long as you're going to not have control of your basic functions of the camera like shutter shutter and iris then it is it ceases to be a production camera for anything other than you know than alternative to gopro or a little camera in the corner of a car or something if you you know because you can't get it to match any of your other cameras okay uh, a, immediately you don't have that control over gopro either but uh yeah it, one of the one of the key you know examples of this is in the in the in that video is the shot of the uh, electronic the tv billboard up on the on the roof there which has got incredible shutter interference that uh, if you had control of your shutter on the 5D, you could get completely get rid of that issue. Um, but uh, not so on the iPhone. You are stuck with whatever shutter it wants to put on there because to, you know, to help with iris, I guess. Okay, but, but a couple of things I'd say about that. Firstly, I totally agree that you're not competing against the 5D in any sensible way because of that, and just lenses, right? Let's face it. Um, but the other thing is you do get a lot of stuff around computational photography because the one thing that the 5D doesn't have, that GoPro absolutely doesn't have, is any kind of control over the footage. But we're already seeing, um, like on the iPad 2, for example, that you can get effectively magic... Uh, is it Plastic Bullet? Plastic Bullet for the iPad yep. that processes at full... Yep, at the full, full res, res of, of the, the image. So while we've got like a ton of stuff saying, okay, this is not good from a lensing point of view, this is not good from a control point of view, actually, if they allow the API, the, the SDK, to get at those controls, then you're going to get a magic bullet or somebody else is going to come along and produce just knock your socks off bloody amazing stuff because yeah. now you can control the camera... And it has the gyroscope, and the gyroscope can feed what the camera is. And, you know, we've seen all these things on the iPhone, right? Like I hold my iPhone, click the button, and it waits until it happens to be detecting that I'm still. stable for a moment. And then takes that photo. And, and none of that stuff exists. And it just seems to me the better the camera gets in the iPhone. Look, I'm not saying it's there. It's just you're seeing this upward trajectory. Like, it's, what's an 8-megapixel camera now? Mm. And, I mean, 8 megapixels is... Yeah, and the oh, lensing look, is it's completely. Better. I don't, I don't bother but, with a point and shoot anymore since at least had the iPhone four. I haven't bothered. Okay, so so it's going up, and but the trouble is you're not seeing the the flip side. You're not seeing any access into any real access into yeah. the SDK or whatever of a Nikon or Canon, mm. or for that matter, a Sony. I think what has to happen is someone like Sony, and I think it'll be a Sony, not a not a. Um, a Nikon or a Canon will open up their camera and allow you to start getting at the files and knowing what's going on and then starting to add some of this stuff like the gyro, some of the other things that are awesome because mm. already with a crappy iPhone pre this version, people are producing some really interesting photography Yeah, and it's not slowing down. So Yeah, look, the, image, the raw images and, and side by side with uh, a, a 5D, obviously the 5D was on, you know, had manual control. But, you know, if you, if you close one eye and just look just at the iPhone stuff, it can quite, look quite filmic. But, you know, the problem is you'll be, you'll be in a situation where um, you can have a hot sky or a hot white building in the sun and all of a sudden the iris is going to go down and you just it's all of a sudden you've run out of usefulness. You're going to have to start repositioning your camera. Yeah, I know. So, and and you know, obviously the lens And again, you'll good. have the same deal with with GoPro. But yeah, yeah, in terms of, yeah, as a GoPro replacement, I think it's a very interesting idea. And up until the point you mentioned, I hadn't even, even thought about it. 
now it's very very viable really for a lock off camera for a third third angle stunt cam rig cam yeah and there's yeah. some other stuff that's happening in computational photography that's kind of cool and not one of the, not least of which is the idea that these phones also bluetooth with each other and so I've seen some interesting stuff that's just coming through now where you could get basically like crowdsourcing a photo where you get all the bloody phones to simultaneously take an 8 megapixel picture, if that makes sense. Mm. So you'd be getting sort of like synchronized flashes or you can actually get one iPhone to actually control another iPhone and fire its flashlight flash. Right. So you can actually start getting... <laughs> You've seen this with iPhones? Yeah. Well, okay. uh, actually not with, with the Nokia. With the, and, okay, with the Nokia. Yeah, right. Because um, I can well see that you're going to get into... You're never going to get into any kind of metadata or get into SDKs with, with iPhones. just never going to happen. It's probably going to happen with well, Android. Why, why is that going to happen? Well, it's just a completely... It's always been a completely closed shop unless you, unless you sort of... But, but fundamentally, it went from a closed shop to an open shop and they decided to have apps on the darn thing. And that well, made them a billion dollars. Yeah. Well, we've had... This so is that's the fourth, the This number. is pretty much the fifth... I, the, the third or fourth sort of uh, ver- version of this, this phone with no sign of anything other than, you know, or oh, we might just give you... Uh, some sort of control over the. Well, now only just the last version. You got you got you got um, exposure lock. Well, I'm saying that it's going to be Android's going to do it first. Yep. And Apple will do it better right after. Mm. Well, either way, uh, Kodak screwed if they want to try and sell any um, happy snappies. Everyone's pretty screwed for trying to sell happy snappy unless it's uh, even you know no one's going to bother. It's uh, for that kind of for that level of camera. No one's going to bother having. Um, if you just if you're not really worried about man, manual controls, you just want a nice quality image in your pocket. You know, there's there's no point spending extra money on on something that you may or may not have with you when you really need it. Well, okay. But anyway, it is definitely an interesting interesting um, comparison to see the two side by side. Uh, so it's, again, links in the show notes. But that's uh, and you know, props to the to the guy who bothered to actually bothered to do it. So. so- so changing gears now to the announcement that's coming by Canon, um, which will actually be out almost the day we publish this podcast as opposed to the day we're recording it. Um, you know, we were talking last week on the show and you were saying that you were pretty sure that there was an EOS 5D Mark III coming. Yeah. Do you want to revise that? Because <laughs> uh, all the rumours are now that it's going to be a combination of the 1D and the 1DS folding into the one product line mm. and that that one product line will be basically save high-end photographers from having a choice between the two models of camera because uh, obviously, you know, as we know, we had uh, different specs between the two versions of the high and most importantly in terms of the size of the sensor and whether it was a cropped sensor or not. But, you know, great low light. Do you see the rumours that they're going to combine like the whole like yeah. high-end 1DS and which is like a crop sensor, you know, sort of halfway full frame, halfway APS. Yep. With with the whole full frame market. Yep. Or who are they going to satisfy? The sports guys who love having a crop sensor, which makes their 400 mil lens all the longer, or the beauty kind of 5D crowd who will burn the Canon factory down if they get rid of uh, another, if they don't make another full frame camera. Um, they're not <laughs> going to get rid of the 5D. They're just going to make. The 1D and the 1DS the same. Okay. They're going to amalgamate them into you, one. That, you're saying that's the launch. Yeah, that's the launch, which I, it sits with And me. then they'll, we'll still, they'll still have to be a 5D Mark III at some stage or another full-frame camera. Yeah. 
And furthermore, um, we've got a lead on how they're going to do the codec in the second announcement, which is the Canon... November 4th, 3rd. Which is, um, yes, there's an existing codec out there on the market Mm. and and we hear rumours that that's going to be incorporated and that company will come under the Canon kind of umbrella. start with a letter that's quite close to the beginning of the alphabet? I'm not going to get there on that. You're not going to draw me out. Okay. but we're trying to get it confirmed. But if that's okay. the case, what's going to happen is that um, I guess the important takeout is not so much what the codec is, but there will be a equivalent to an R3D from Canon. In yeah. other words, a raw compressed format yeah. that is lossless raw. Oh no, uh, a, not a, a not very a lossy. visually lossless. A visually lossless. Yes. Yes. Hmm. So interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. So the question is, how much is Canon? basically leaking like a sieve and how much is it uh because it's my perception that canon is good but i also hear that these cameras are being tested around there's some out in the field and that's how we're getting this information Mm. but it's not a lot they're doing pretty well to keep that so they're sort of stopping most of the leaks i haven't really yet to sort of hear much on the full resolution of the thing yet that's yet to be very conflicting leaks because so. let's face it, the Apple leaks weren't leaks. They were just a bunch of prats guessing. Yeah. So, <laughs> As opposed to what we're doing here, which is completely... Well, I'd like to think what we're doing is not saying we... I guess last week, maybe this week I'm guilty of it, but last week what we were trying to do was set up the parameters upon which we'd consider success or failure in what they were doing, hmm. rather than True. saying, I'm telling you this is what it's going to be because a mate knows a mate who knows a mate. Yeah. Um, I am doing that a little bit this week, that's true. But that's because I <laughs> don't want to give away too much. But, um, yeah, and I think that's valid. I don't have a problem with that. Hmm. Well, I... So I will point out, though, that, you know, that discussion we had last time about uh, deal, no deal on the... Quite a few people emailed me to say, I think you're missing the point on a two-third sensor. I would actually like one, please. Yeah, that's true. A lot of people obviously still... And, you know, I'm sure there is validity to two-thirds sensor, particularly, I guess, particularly in the fact that, uh, you know, these are all fields where, you, you know, chasing focus is, uh, you know, is a, pro- is a production and scheduled decision, you know. It's um, not going to be production-worthy if you're run-and-gun, you know, um, in a war zone, you know, we've talked about this before, in a war zone, run-and-gun, uh, where you get you know, one shot... You know, you get the one-shot chance to get it right. And uh, if you're going to have to chase your, you know, chase your uh, depth of field to get out there. I don't know. We were shooting last week with the F20, uh, the F35 with the Codex box. And it was awesome. But we were also shooting with the Epic. And we were getting depth of fields because we had the Canon mount on the Epic. We were getting depth of field that I famously, I had to show Jason this because I wanted to like not have him call me out on it. We actually got a third of a depth of a sesame seed depth of field. For you, Mr. Wingrove, who <laughs> says, I, you can't get shallow enough for me, I'll gaffer tape it at wide open. You'd have to admit that was getting pretty shallow. Yeah, it's pretty. I'm not, I'd like to see how much light you'd have to pump in there to get anything more than a third of uh, a sesame seed's depth of field. But that's not uh, that's not a colloquialism. That's not like like a bee's dick, like a kind of. Yes, it's physically a shot of a sesame seed of which you should actually at least might might put I'll one put that, a still of that in the in the show notes. The front of the sesame seed is out of focus. The back of the sesame seed about is out of focus, and it isn't even lying flat. It's like, and are you so close to a sesame seed? It's actually even hard to even tell. You know. 
know, as like with all macro stuff, it's impossible to even tell what the, that it is actually even a sesame seed at all. It had to be pointed out to me how big the thing is. It's um, pretty impressive because... Uh, all without using any macro lenses, I might add. Yeah, yeah, because when you told me you were going to do it, I said, oh, well, you've got to get this. You should get these macros, da, 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 go and get a, uh, a T-Rex rig or why don't you get a... Um, uh, a Fraser kit. He goes, yeah, yeah, great, good idea. Good, yeah, that's good, Jace. No worries. Okay, so what did you get, Mike? Uh, some three dollar extension tubes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually worked really, really well. We had yeah. a, an extension tubes, and we had a reversing mount, which I think when I first heard about that, it was a while ago. I was like, get the fuck out of here! What? To mount the camera back, mount the lens, the lens backwards. backwards. Yeah, mm, but mm. it works. Um, Interestingly, we- your images for that close traditionally you should be if you'd used other methods you would have got incredible almost like you'd have to sort of put it into post to get rid of the chromatic aberration and almost that sort of shift you'd get if you're using diopters or whatever as soon as Mm -hmm. you start or even stacking diopters together you're going to get incredible you're going to have to start you know seeing on the foreground of stuff going to start having a bit of a red 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 ca shift on one side and then blue and the other and almost having to you know get into post and start you know correcting or keying that stuff out but there's nothing none of that it's impressive actually i really thought there'd be a lot of artifacts and junk that it would look like i must say had we been able to get the fraser rig we would have happily used it (laughs) we neither had the budget nor one lying around but still then you know you always get that issue with macro it's like and you probably even had it with yours like how the hell i want to tilt up a tiny bit and just get a little bit more headroom on the on the sesame seed that um you know the ability to actually physically move stuff around becomes uh, incredible so if you actually imagined if you put uh, your lens on the front of a fraser kit and you try and tilt up i'm going to give a uh, instruction to those listeners that happen to be in the united states of america the us of a if you pull out a one dollar bill from your pocket of money where you keep tip money to give to people at car parks um and you look at the back where it's got the really weird eye on the pyramid which i still don't understand uh, on the other side of the god we trust there's an eagle on that american dollar bill and if you look really closely at the eagle we were focused between the beak and the eye of the eagle that's inside the round thing inside the bit on your one dollar bill um we couldn't get the word america <laughs> in frame we could get part of the word america in frame but we had varying amounts of macro but on our most macro shot we were we were right in on the eye of the eagle on the one dollar bill and we'll put that in the show notes as so well. so what lens were you say for the sesame seed shot what lens were you using with your extension tubes to get the sesame seed shot? well that's a really interesting question because we discovered that as much as we liked the canon glass we didn't have manual aperture yeah and we thought we'd just have to be wide open, right? Yeah. Because that's what I was joking. I was yeah. like, fucking wide open and everything. Yeah, yeah. But we weren't. So we ended up going down to F4 because we had um, a bunch of light being pumped in. Um, and we weren't on that stuff, on some later stuff when we oh, were doing... Oh, you wouldn't have had manual control, of course, because, yeah, the lens is not connected, connected to, the, to body the body anymore, anymore of course. Yeah. Oh, yes. So we stuck the Nikon glass on. So this mm. was actually relatively cheap Nikon glass because it's old glass. You could and have put the lens on a 5D, chosen the iris, then put the lens back on the extension no, tube, but that's a bit sticking around. No, no, it doesn't actually work like that because when it loses power and connects or something, it just has a um, Automatically spring in there that goes wide, wide open. open. Yeah. Mm, so what we were doing was we right. were using the uh, Nikon lenses and they worked fine, no chromatic aberration. I mean, you can buy these lenses really cheaply. I mean, like phenomenally cheaply. Mm. And um, and then we put them on the tubes, and then we had a, obviously a Nikon to Canon mount converter as well as the tubes going into the yeah. Canon mount, and it worked and it was solid and it was fine and it worked really well. 
Um, it looked kind of old-fashioned because he had an old-fashioned aperture ring. I liked that. Mm. Um, but what was funny was uh, being able to do a tracking shot or a panning shot, we just were dead in the water on being able to pull focus at everything. Yeah. yeah, you can just... It's by, yeah, your tracking shot becomes a, a pan, a very, very, very hard-to-do pan. Well, now, what we did is we got a turntable, like a record player. Oh, yeah. And we actually sat stuff on the record player. Like a record player. player? An actual record player. Yeah, so I thought. <laughs> an actual turntable. And and one of our guys here DJs, so he kindly lent us one, probably not his expensive one. And because uh, we had, you know, super close-up shots of um, strawberries hitting icing sugar where you were getting like a 20th of a strawberry in shot at the time. Mm. Um, anyway, so, uh, so we did that and... Um, this is all over an FX PhD. If you want to see all this and how we did it, and then we're going to be grading this footage. And in, yeah, it was really, it's pretty fun. Like the asparagus, the tip of the end of the asparagus was vast in shot. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. But to do that, then you, you just turn the turntable. It was the only thing we could find that was really super smooth. But just mm-hmm. um, on things like the fiber optics, we got down to, to the scratches on a single piece of fiber optic strand and the various bumps and stuff on the strand itself. Yeah. And at that point, we, we found no way that even going anywhere near it didn't cause it to wobble and vibrate, and that was, like, really, really hard to get anything. Wow. But... Um, no, macro stuff, macro is hard. It's, it's interesting. In it's the old fun. days, well, I guess we used to... Often one of, one of the techniques was just free lensing we used to do. It's easier to do with a PL mount when, when you unlock it, you can actually slide the lens out without it literally falling on the floor. But uh, if you, uh, if someone like <laughs> the camera assistant forgot the diopters <laughs> back at the rental rental house, uh, yeah, one of the best things. And again, you don't get the correct that uh, um, chromatic aberration is to yeah, just literally pull the lens out. I did it on a shot for more for creative effect. I did it on uh, shoot a couple of uh, last month, I think, in London had had to do a shot close up of a pen, you know, writing, and it was a bit of an off-the-cuff shot, and I didn't have a lens that was really very macro-friendly. I just literally rested the lens on the table and moved the camera. The camera became, the camera body loose of the lens became my sort of framing tool, and, you know, you get a ton of flare and all that sort of stuff, and it was just all part of the, all part of the look. But, yeah, free lensing. Give it a go. The only trouble with free lensing is if the director isn't you... And says, that's great, yes. do that again. You go... Yeah, oh, no, it's completely un- unrepeatable mm-hmm. and it's very random. And you go, oh, that's great. You go, ah, you? And the whole framing's gone. It's really hard to find that sweet spot. It's very random and quick, shoot. Well, we were doing food stuff. So we were doing the texture on a piece of sushi where the knife had cut it at sort of like massively close up, as you could tell from the sesame seed being almost full mm. frame. But I've got to say, like... You might say, well, so what's new? We could do that with a 5D. But the thing about a 5D is I get that great performance when I hit the shutter and take a still, but I wasn't getting it at moving footage. Yeah. And, and 5K. And it, exactly. And it's 5K. So I got 120 frame a second, macro 5K, mm. and that's where it was just like an awful like the price of some icing sugar and a couple of Bit cheap of sushi. lenses. Well, the sushi, <laughs> yeah, which we actually ate half of because that was crew catering. So... Um, yeah, but anyway, that's all over at FXPHD. And actually, um, we were discussing that in the first class of background, which is not where we're going to use the footage. We're going to use it in our grading stuff because we've got a red grading course. Yeah, uh, can we mention that? Yeah, that's um, the craft of color grading. Uh, no, no, that's two. There's two. The oh. craft of color grading. That's a creative Oh, yeah, no, course. sorry, sorry. This is not yours. That is another one. No, that's another one. That's a good course, but it's just not my one. 
Yeah, so there's 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 two going, which is uh, excellent. Now, ours is a three hundred level or advanced level grading course. So we were we were uh, setting that up in terms of still stuff because again, which we explain in that class, we were doing tricks to get stills. I think I tried to explain this to you the other day at the pub. We're trying to get stills out of the HDRX track. Yep. By exposing differently, so as to get. Uh, simultaneously good video and good stills with different levels of motion blur from the same clip and the same exposure. Yeah. And I don't know, I can actually explain that on air. <laughs> no, you have to see the video. <laughs> but it worked really well. Yes, um, Red Epic grading f- workflow is yours. Right. Excellent. Um, and if you want to see what we're talking about and you don't want to join but you want to sample, um, if you go over to FX Guide, we've got uh, some classes. Um, or rather, we've got a video in FX Guide TV. So the episode uh, number, I'm going to say 122, which uh, has a nuke section at the front and then at the back. And also there's a link on the um, on the uh, FX Guide main page to the uh, FX PhD video. He said plugging away because, quite frankly, um, it's my Do livelihood. It. Yeah, it's completely uh, legitimate plug. Jason, if I could just interrupt us at this point in time, um, because as we were just about to put this podcast to air, and I know it's a bit confusing if you're listening to it in the car, but just imagine for a second, we've done the recording, we've edited it, we've completely just about finished, about to hit the go button, and it's mid-afternoon, and suddenly Canon decides to actually release exactly what I was talking about. And so clearly, (laughs) Jason, I needed to insert this uh, recording here so I could sound like a smug bastard as in you are such a smug bastard as uh, i in fact uh need to report that the in fact as we are going to air as literally uh as you listen to this yesterday afternoon uh canon released the news of the 1dx which by the way they kind of leaked rather than kind of announced by putting it in a in a separate item yeah i saw that earlier then the name of the camera sort of showed up in uh, some other sort of thread and then of course i guess they kind of uh, needed to well they were trumpeting how many how many canon cameras and lenses they had sold which was a lot and said you know with our new flagship 1dx and then everyone went what what and to which they went <clears throat> did i tell you oh, about that oh, yes. did i not mention that i'm sorry sure i, I'm sure I mentioned that before yeah no um by the way here's the press release on that yeah, um, here's something we were prepared earlier but weren't quite ready to show you just yet. So let's just hit through the big bullet points. And before I do that, let me just get, tell everyone the schedule if you haven't heard. So this is a camera announced literally like two hours ago but will be not shipping until March 2012. So there's plenty of time to uh, to discuss it and think about it. Um, yeah. But this is the new flagship camera and we're just going to discuss it pretty much from a video point of view as we would on this show. So, Jake, do you want to give us the main... Um, uh, headline points on this new 1DX. Well, I thought originally, yeah, originally I thought, oh, well, you know, it doesn't seem to be much interesting uh, news really to talk about on the video front. But uh, if you dig a little bit deeper, there is a few little things under the hood which are quite interesting. Uh, first of which I think probably is the, lo- one of them is the longer recording time. Yes. So we've often said that it was uh, two things that were causing it to not record. One is that if it went over 30 minutes or even hit 30 minutes, it would come under a different tax, and apparently that's true. And we've since now learnt that that tax is about 30%. So if it, if it was to record past 29.59, uh, 
to 30 minutes, it would actually invoke this big attack. But that didn't seem to matter because as soon as you hit a 4 gig limit on the um, FAT32, it just stopped recording anyway, which tended to be more like about 10, 11, or 12 minutes, depending on um, yeah. what was going on. And that's yeah, been so fixed. The 4 gig limit is, is reality. It's just that the tax was probably a little bit more of a, a, a bigger defining problem than we'd thought. Well, I guess the point is the tax remains and the 4 gig limit has a workaround. So it now mm. it, will shut it, it will shut the file down elegantly at 4 gig, open a new one up, and all you need to do in, in post is kind of butt those two files up together. So it will, in yeah. fact, record uninterrupted, albeit in multiple files, up to the magical 2959, at which point it'll stop. Close the file, stop as it used to before, at about 12 minutes, say. It, camera does have dual CF cards. I think its predecessor had a CF card and an SD card or so to give you the choice, but this is obviously letting you follow on, at least as far as I know, still as wise, it will let you follow on um, endlessly. I think what it does is let the uh, files follow on from card to card, as far as I understand, and then you join the... Uh, so far, the word is that you join the files uh, seem easily in post. Yeah. And the thing about it is it will do it without dropping a frame, which is totally yeah. fine. Um, in fact, an R3D file will do this. There can be multiple R3D subcomponent files that all just are treated as one by the software when it looks at it. Um, yeah. So that's that's not new. But, of course, what is terrific is having a sort of half hour as opposed to 10 minute. Because if you're doing an interview, stopping every half hour to hit go again... It's not nearly as much of a hassle oh, as it was stopping every 10 minutes. Absolutely. I've completely chosen uh, other formats over DSLR where DSLR might have been quite the nice practical choice and I've had to dump it just purely from uh, file, uh, from you know recording time. Now, the other news is this is rumoured to be about a $7,000 camera. We haven't actually got mm. actual confirmation on that price, but that's what we think it's going to be. Uh, but there yeah. are some more actual facts that Canon gave us in terms of video. Do you want to touch on some of those? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, similar frame rate, rec recording uh, frame rates and resolutions to, say, a 7D being doing 1080p, a 24, 25 and 30 and 720p for 50 and 60 frames. Uh, one of the interesting things, I think, is that there's, I'm not sure if you've touched on this yet, Mike, but there is uh, a couple of different codecs, essentially a couple of um, options on the levels of compression to um, give you smaller files necessarily, not to try and get you longer recording times, but uh, smaller files. I think the, sm the smaller of the uh, compressions is more of a long op kind of thing. Uh, Mike, are you across this? Uh, look, I'm not across the, the details of it other than it does have these different record modes. Um, mm. Intra-frame and inter-frame. Yeah, which is I obviously... IPB and ALL. Yeah, so it's actually the difference between like a JPEG and an MPEG. MPEG, uh, you know, uses multiple frames and then offsets and, and JPEGs obviously are discrete um, framing encodings. And, and that distinction, uh, that, that style of JPEG or MPEG type of distinction is is not unsurprising. Um, it just means mm. that when it comes to codecs, you know, you just have to make sure they're supported properly at the at the editor level. Um, but this this 18 megapixel camera is a full sensor, and I think that's a really big point because, of course, the, yeah. the latest iteration of the 1D prior to this was not. It was a crop yes, sensor. Yes, the 1DS Mark. Uh, yes, well, the 1D uh, Mark IV is a APS-H halfway between, say, full frame and Super 35, the other sort of pro uh, one series camera they had was the Mark III, 
which was full frame but didn't have a movie mode. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, in, in addition to being full sense, which I think is a huge deal for a lot of people, is just how friggingly ridiculously high the ISO is meant to go on this thing. Of course, we don't know mm. how noise-free it's going to be, but they're claiming that they're getting um, another couple of stops on what they've had previously, and I think five over the over the previous model of the the 1D that was the full sensor size. So, Which is really interesting because obviously the more, I guess, you've perhaps got down the bottom end, not necessarily going to give you better dynamic range, but if it lets you sort of lift those blacks a bit, it lets you sort of underexpose a bit and protect highlights and gives you that kind of sort of poor man's dynamic range, I guess, to sort of fix it in post-dynamic range. Well, I like the uh, specs that are between 100 and 51,200, <laughs> though there is an extended dynamic range option it'll get you between 50 and 204,800 which I've got to say it's not a very convenient number to, to refer to I'm just going to call that 200,000 ISO that is an interesting mode the extended dynamic range mode and well, obviously once they start to cameras eventually um, some demo cameras start to filter in we'll have, have to put that on the bench for sure I think one of the other interesting things with the camera is that um, Obviously, as with these other one series cameras, they throw a few more processors into the mix. Uh, three three processors in there. There's two Digic Five Pluses and uh, one Digic Four. Now, the Digic Four I think handles some of the autofocus and auto exposure fun- functions, and the other processors apparently are going to be throwing at. Um, Reducing the moray, reducing jello, and also, I think, also processing uh, a bit of chromatic aberration. I'm not quite sure why that. That probably is more for uh, stills mode rather than uh, video, but certainly the, the moray and, and jello are going to be uh, a little bit more uh, greatly reduced from all reports of people who have been testing these things so far, which is terrific. Another interesting thing is on the hit list of, of pain in the ass, um, on the pain in the ass file for current DSLRs is um, jumping for a moment to audio level. I think there's still some interesting stuff on video side, but um, audio-wise, they obviously there's manual audio levels, but adjustable during... Um, before and during the recording, which is interesting because that's obviously been a real pain. So Do you want to know if it's got a headphone jack for monitoring? No, that would be the next... That would be, that would be the other one part of the audio the equation list. that would make a huge difference. I mean, you can't monitor audio then. Yeah. Um, one of the th- other things that they've that could sort of um, flag possible that the addition of that function is that uh, they've added a time code, Mike. Hmm. Have you seen this? Now, the ability then, obviously, and I guess that would be some sort of audio out function to be able to sync to... Um, uh, say time code slates and sort of uh, jam sync the two together I imagine. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting um, nod to video without going mm. because the trouble is... Let's not go too far because, you at know, this point, I'd be stuff re- in the mix. I was going to say, I'd be really excited about this really excited. I, just, I come to like that kind of, the record gets pulled off um, screeching halt, uh, hang on a second is that we're still outputting H264 8-bit and this is uh, this is a pretty monumental. Um, oh, by the way, the Moray pattern I think is is huge. Like losing that uh, aliasing is is massive. But you know the compression artifacts we've seen in five um, Ds, you know where the picture really breaks up because of this H two six four encoding is not to be yeah. sneezed at. It's it's eight bit, which is not a good thing for for grading. Um, and it, and this is a professional camera where obviously almost all the still shot on it will be graded. And yet yeah. we're talking about having a camera that's not outputting um, stuff that's really good for grading for video. 
So that being Look, said, it's an interesting. Uh, get, sorry, go ahead. I think it's flagging potentially flagging the way for the video functions we may see in the you know five D Mark III. Uh, obviously, all packaged up in an com- incredibly competent and pro stills body. Well, that's so. I was going to say that because one of the biggest things for me about this camera is how it isn't massively lifting the video uh, threshold. Because mm. would this not, by definition, define the upper limit on what the five D Mark III can do? In other words, if this camera doesn't have this yeah. kind of stuff, it's very unlikely the five D Mark III is going to have anything but H two six four encoding. Yeah. Up until this yes, second, I could have held out very close for that, you know, mm. like a ProRes, for example, uh, encoding. But I can't imagine them releasing the 5D Mark III with better, just significantly better specs for this stuff than they do with their flagship. This is true, although the 5D Mark III up until now had way better specs than the previous camera because it did movies at all. Um, well, no, but the 1D uh, did but, movies. I mean, sure, no, it did do. Um, with the pluses of it being that it it did do um, 50, 60 frames, um, which the 5D obviously can't do. So, um, so this is a seven thousand dollar camera. In this discussion, I mean, it might be not be that, but that's what we think it is. Are you? Uh, if you, if I told you the 5D Mark III wasn't coming out till Christmas next year, would you buy one of these? Hmm, that's a tricky one. I think, I mean, there's certainly some some significant fixes by the sound of things going on here. Maybe not triple the price of a, a 5D Mark II to, to warrant it. Um, if I shot a lot of stills, I might be tempted. It's obviously a very bigger, much bigger, if anyone's ever actually held or used a, a one-series uh, camera for for you know for movie mode it's this is a this is a significantly bulkier heavier camera and, and you know and and rightly so it's built like a brick shithouse it's um you know got it's f- f- way more aluminium and alloy chassis yeah, the, the and seals, seals and there, yeah, yeah uh, it, it's it's massive it's designed to uh, but i imagine that your hdmi port will bust before your camera busts um if you're going to use it that much so i i'm i'm not sure it's terrific it's fantastic uh, you know it's it's fantastic that it's full frame it's fantastic well, I, that i'll say that uh, categorically i wouldn't i mean i absolutely wouldn't and i'll tell you why i went mm. to new zealand with a 1d we had on a hire yep. with the 5d and the epic and with those three cameras at my disposal i didn't end up using the 1d much at all now there's mm. two reasons for that i guess one of them was the the crop sensor um yep. and the second thing was it was kind of bulky because of that base adds a lot of weight adds a lot of stuff to it and so once i started adding bulk and weight to it it was a much smaller jump from it to the epic and i just used the epic um and now i thought that i would be using the 1d more because i thought well i've got a chance to use the 1d it's the only chance i'll have to use it because i've got mm. it on higher blah, blah blah and i just found that when it was sitting there on the table I just didn't really like because if I wanted really good, I went uh, epic, and if I didn't want so good, I wanted then I wanted it to be really light and really nimble and really easy. And I guess partly, I guess I knew the menus of the five D so well, but I wasn't the only one. Stu was on that trip, John was on that trip. None of us were uh, really grabbing the one D much at all. Um, yeah. And so this one is better than that one, but not so much so that I think I'm, I'm willing. Seven thousand. Yeah, I'm categorically about. coming out and saying. For me personally, I don't feel the need to swap my 5D for this. But yeah. here's the other thing. The 5D Mark III should be at least announced before this comes out in March of 2012. So we're not really going to have to to make that decision, are we? I mean, yeah. No, exactly. Well, that's that's the theory. We hope, we hope, we're hope hoping that uh, 
the um, I guess late October, yeah, the late, late the October twenty eighth, whatever it is, announcement is going to be five D Mark three. So I think oh, I guess it was probably going to be this as well. I think but. it was going to be this. I don't think you're going to. In fact, I'm I'm actually willing to also stick my neck out and say there's now a fifty fifty chance in my mind that you won't even see the five D Mark three before NAB next year. Well, they're making a big hoopla out of this announcement on the twenty eighth as well. I just I don't think it's an EOS camera. I just don't think it is. I think it's a it's a video camera that shoots raw to a compressed codec type thing, but it's a video camera that'll take stills lenses. It's um, that's what I think it is. But I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I guess uh, they they know the limitations of the camera. They are looking at them. They are work- looking at ways of uh, improving them. Not improving them too much, but uh, they're doing what they can. Uh, so at least you know it, it bodes well for the improvements to the five D. Not as much as possibly as we as we'd hoped for. Um, but uh, as we said, Canon have solutions for you know something beyond what the five. If the five D won't help, won't won't do it for you. Um, then you know, sounds like they've got they've got other stuff in the works to to you know fill that gap. Why doesn't there Why isn't there a GPS in this thing? I, I think it'd be really good if this thing had you know some stuff like that. I mean, there's yeah. got to be room in that body for. I mean, maybe not an inclinometer because I can get that that's not really needed. <laughs> but but wouldn't it there's be an external There's an external GPS which yeah. I guess is of more use for. Um, you can stick one of those in an iPhone. And it's the size of a tiny yeah. thing. I'm sure you can stick yeah. in one of these. Yeah, it should be geotagged. I think it really should at that price, at that level. To have it inbuilt. I'm not impressed. I'm there. You go. I'm stuck my neck out. Not impressed. I'm. I. I love Canon. I love my 5D Mark II to death. But this camera doesn't set my ass to burn as a light. That's there. You go. I've said it. Yeah, but if you're a stills guy, right? This this really, I think, appeals to the press guys or the press guys who have to go out there and shoot both, right? Who, if they wanted that lovely film full frame look, they've been stuck with the 5D, which may well satisfy their video. Uh, thing, but that you know, they're not getting some of the functions of the, or it's, they're not getting the the one series uh, ruggedness. You know, all all of the uh, all of the sort of uh, functions that come in those one series cameras. You know, with the uh, the ability to port to things and wireless transmitters and LAN connections and all the sort of stuff that they they use for press. Um, but you know, so I guess it's if you have those dual use, this is fantastic. This is going to be really great for the serious press guys who do have that that added workload of oh, while you're there, can you please you know shoot a couple of interviews? I will say this: that clearly, like, they don't care what I think because <laughs> here's the thing, right? This camera is, and this is in their press release. It was, a, it was the first thing that I went to on Twitter, and I pointed this out. If you look at their press release, the very bottom, it says they're expecting to have 7,000 units per month when it ships. So that's 84,000 um, units a year. And if we guess yeah. that it's about seven grand, that's $588 million worth of business, unless I've got my maths wrong, but I like to think that I can do maths in my head. So let's say it's half a billion dollars worth of business out of this one camera alone. So... That just gives you some uh, pause. And also, I've got to say, if they sell 7,000 of these buggers, uh, doesn't make... I mean, it either it either bodes incredibly well for what Scarlet should be able to do or it mm. points to the fact that, you know, there's a lot, lot of space in that sort of professional uh, end to move in because this is, you know, in addition to the tens of thousands of 5Ds, they'll... They are selling and will sell if they introduce a Mark III and the video cameras of the entire video line. 
Well, it's going to be very interesting uh, come, you know, Scarlet Day when we see what potentially could well be, you know, a sub $10,000 or $10,000-ish camera that uh, will potentially has the the nice raw stills ability and obviously has movie mode and all the ability, you know, all the sound stuff we're, we're used to. Um, Doesn't 7,000 units a month just dumbfound you? Well, what was the original statistic that led to the leaking, which was like in the millions um, of lenses and millions of... Uh, yes. Because this is the whole uh, idea of the X for the, the 1DX is that this is the 10th generation of pro DSLR um, cameras, starting with the F1 back in the 70s. So it, that, they've, that they've had a yeah, reasonable it, amount of time. The, to- the original press release, this is off Canon's website, so this is not uh, GOSS, Yep. is that they are celebrating 50 million EOS cameras since they started uh, making them in uh, 87. And they are celebrating, which interestingly to me isn't as high as I thought, 70 million Seventy million lenses. EF lenses. Yeah. Mm. You'd think they'd actually sell more than, you know, for, like for 50 cameras, they only sell 70. There must be a lot of people that buy the kit camera that comes with the camera and doesn't buy another lens after that. Yes, that, can, that, that, that goes down as a buy of a lens. Because if you... Th- if you think about it, for those 50 million cameras and 70 million lenses, just between you and me, we've got like, what, 10 million lenses. So that means there's only 60 million lenses left for the other 49,998,000 left of the others. So, you know, it's not but so I've many. I've always had EOS cameras since, you know, until up until the digital sort of era. All through film, I always had the EOS. There was always streets ahead, I thought. In, in, in the 80s and 90s, I always had... Um, you know, but I never bothered with anything other than kit lens. So, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I can, I can see that amount. And, and there are quite a lot of lenses on offer, like it's, you know, yeah. So anyway, that's what the press release. So was the video the- side of this thing, it really is, you know, a reasonably small. This camera, I guess, reflects the amount of the market that rep- is represented by the for the video side. Is about as much uh, takes about as much of the interest of, of the camera itself. Does that make sense? I think you know it's a proportion of the, the camera's functions in relative to the people who buy EOS camera um, EOS cameras for video. Did you see it has Giga in it as well? By the way, yeah. Which is uh, so. What's that? That's uh, yeah, Ethernet. Um, I I guess I'm not sure what you use that for. I guess it's just for really reasonably fast downloading or for um that's I, for, I, for a tethered for tethered shooting or yeah, if i would have been a lot more excited if they told me that that had a thunderbolt in it yeah if that had a gps cool. in it and a thunderbolt i'd have said you know hello canon <laughs> but i i just don't get out of bed for you know i'm sorry it's just not just regular it's not you don't get, get out of bed for giga ethernet not really no no I don't, i'm afraid i mean yes it can do 12 frames a second at uh, full Resolution, but quite frankly, if you've ever heard those one series, what do you have? I guess you get the one series camera and you put it on, you know, continuous and hold that button down. It's quite a scary thing. Oh, it's not. It's wimpy. <laughs> uh, give me a, give me a, a raw no, twenty, whatever eighteen give me megapixels a Mitchell raw, five hundred frames a second of the film running through at the gate where you know you're going to mm. re-sprocket it if it, the film if it gets out of whack. That's no, but if that's, you look at if you look at this camera, it's eighteen megapixel. It's doing twelve frames a second. Jace, real uh, men go faster than twelve frames a second, mate. Uh, that's what I'm leading to. Okay. okay, so if you look at when theoretically when we have a larger sensor with Red Dragon, right? You've got Red, which an Epic, which will do theoretically full frame or beyond and shoot you know raw 
um, uh, I guess five K or plus, whatever, whatever the however many K the red the red dragon sensor is going to be, and shoot at many many more frames per second, and and continuously, and keep going. I mean, this oh, may shoot in, twelve frames a second, but as soon as you max out your buffer, it's going to drop down to about five or six. No, I mean, this in in the high end five K kind of filmic sense, red is eating cannons breakfast knocking mm. its legs out from underneath it and then yeah. laughing as it as it kicks sand in its face. But, as it walks away. Yeah, but, but to... that being said, I'd also point out that if Canon is selling 7000 a month of just this 1D, then mm. they don't give a rat's <laughs> Yeah, no, as I say, they don't. They don't. The, the ratio of people who are really, truly interested in, in video versus it's an interesting part of the market, it's a part of their sales, but... You know, drop in the ocean compared to all the rest of the stuff. So anyway, this is the minor announcement. So I guess we just—I I, am—I am very yeah. pessimistic about what this says about the 5D Mark III. But I hope I hang in—I hang my sort of uh, hopes on the idea that they're going to release this proper video camera that takes stills lenses. That oh, by the way, does stills as opposed to this stills camera that oh, by the way, does video. We shall see. Hey, you've—you've—you've you've, you've been right in the past. <laughs> and now the RC Gear Guide. So tell me that if I was if I was going off off uh, message by discussing iPhones, you want to discuss bongos? What's that about? <laughs> okay, well I got put onto this uh, by a Steadicam guy um, in Melbourne, Harry Panagiotitis, who's probably one of the best guys in in, in Melbourne. And uh, he just started. Uh, we had to strap a ton of stuff onto Steadicam. We had the uh, Red Byte. We had like sort of step down the decimator. We had step down HD to SD adapters to go from the Epic to his uh, standard def rig. Uh, I had the Teradek transmitters to go to my walk around wireless monitors. We had a ton of stuff all bolted onto onto the Steadicam as you do. Uh, and he pulled out all these little things and I'm going, dude, dude, what is that? What is that little thing you got there? And he said, oh, bongo ties. I said, what the hell? What is a bongo tie? It's a very simple. It is a cable tie. It's a it's a rubber band with a little t- woggle toggly thing at the end of it. And this with these things were fantastic for strapping stuff on different places, stuff on the sled, stuff on the bottom, strap, strapping stuff up to the top of the, the top of the camera. Very. I just I could not resist taking a picture, writing down the writing down the URL. Bongo. I think if you go to bongotires.com, they'll just go through to there ebay store or whatever very simple very cheap like for five bucks or something for a pack of 10 rubber bands with a little thing but man they were handy and they're you know quite studio friendly so it's not just like some sort of dinky little thing this uh these are quite good for you know cable you had you could wrap up uh quite heavy cables with these things so yes uh it's completely stupid and it's on par with your iphone thread but hey they were good saved us my iPhone thread is incredibly interesting to a lot of people. Mm, yes. Okay. So, um, okay. So, Epic accessories and some DSLR accessories. Uh, actually, there's another thing I've forgotten off my notes here, which is uh, wooden camera have got a little uh, top plate. The thing with the Epic is that you want a shitload more bolts all over this camera than are actually provided. Um, so, have you seen have you seen the D- DSMC tactical top plate? Yeah, that's the other thing I was so going to play. Um, this, uh, this, okay, wooden wooden camera have got a plate. Um, right, Viewfa- Viewfactor have got a plate. How much is it? Because um, the Viewfa- red one's three hundred bucks. How much is yeah. the one? Uh, I think 
even I think two ninety nine or something. <laughs> so the uh, the wooden camera have the Easy Top uh, Easy Top plate for Epic X. That's two ninety nine, and uh, Red have their their what do they call it? Tactical the Tactical Top, top plate, plate for three hundred for three hundred bucks. Okay, and the View Factor have their more expensive um, one that Brooke Willard's design, which is very nice as well. The I think the main difference for the wooden camera one is it's in in the center of the top of the camera is the access to the wireless uh the red uh red link i think it is the wireless yeah. wireless section that's where the transmitter is now um both brook and uh red's plate have a completely open area there for i guess for transmission reasons yes yeah, so it doesn't act as a faraday cage exactly and so i think wooden camera just have a separate section in the middle there where you can bolt this on if you're only um, and obviously once red moats really get up and running and we have a proper taste of what the actual real world final um transmission range is going to be a red moat other than what at the moment is about 18 inches um then you have the option to take this center plate out um, if you want to have a little bit more range on the red mode, or you can bolt it on there and sort of fill in the gap. So it's basically the wooden camera one's got a few more holes on the top and a quarter-inch and three-sixteenth holes on the top. And, uh, yeah, if you need the extra range, you can take this section out. So more holes. But, you know, I can't help thinking that this is what the top of the camera should look like in the first place. You know, <laughs> you got this funnel thing. You got all this heat issues. You've got, you know, you, that's great. That's part of the design. But you know, there's literally like whatever four holes on the top of the thing. It would be really good, and they're all in the same spot. And if you bolt one object on, like a monitor or a handle, you lose all of those bolts. So it would be really great if you know that this is kind of basically everyone has found that this is this is really how the top of the camera should look like in the first place it's an accessory we shouldn't that we shouldn't have to buy but uh, well anyway hey now you said that then you had, what would you I had talk an about? slr accessory what was that yeah yeah um we talked about the other day i think about the um hdmi port protector from zacuto so the do you remember a while back and i didn't really we didn't feature it on the podcast because it was so incredibly ridiculous was the lock circle the 99 dollar 100 dollar whatever aluminium canon what are we talking port about? cap right port cap uh the lock lock circle lock circle made a hundred dollar canon lens not a lens cap a body cap Oh, body cap, yeah. Yeah, right. So these guys have done another little uh, gadget called the lock port. Now, this is uh, a bracket, another one of these brackets to protect the HDMI port. And again, I've talked about the fact that I know well and truly, truly that uh, this is something you need to, to be careful of, having cost me thousands. Um, it. Uh, what I like about this one is it actually adapts onto the Red Rock Micro DSLR base plate, which I don't know if you use that, Mike, but I yeah, use yeah. it all the time when I'm using my 5D, which is that quick-release plate. It uh, not only rises the camera to sort of the right height, but it also stops it. It has those um, little pins that stop the camera from rotating. It's a really solid, nice quick-release uh, plate for a DSLR. So they've adapted uh, basically you take the little top plate off that and replace it with this and you actually get a um and rather than the Zacuto version which has it relies you to have your own um use your own cable and clamp that into place this completely replaces this gives you another whole socket i guess so uh, and also hey, that like, socket but, points but, to the back or the front but of the my camera. cable goes into this thing and this thing goes into my camera right yep but this thing doesn't stop the cable coming out of that so my cable goes into this. Yes. Nothing stops my cable coming out of this. 
No. The thing you're talking about before, I actually saw a photo of you holding the weight of your SLR, you bugger, on that thing that... The, the Secudo one? Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was like I, so secure. That, that wasn't me, but yes, that was the guy oh, at Secudo was... who were happy to hang a camera from I the... I just saw it in your from the, from the, uh, yeah, hang a camera from the I was thinking that was odd for you to do that. No, I, thought I would not must have, have been trunk. No, no, that's uh, someone else. Um, yeah, now this basically means... So, so and what, what the, the other thing it does... Well, the advantage is, I guess, that you... A, it's putting the cam the cable... A, it's a right angle adapter. Yeah. It goes from mini HDMI to normal. La- to yeah. normal HDMI. B, it adapts it and either puts the cable out the back of the camera or out the front of the camera. Mm. Now, if you've got an EVF, if you've got an EVF, you've got a monitor or any of the EVFs, the logical place to put that thing is right next to the the place where the cable comes out of the camera. Mm. So it redirects it. It changes it to a larger, more robust cable in the first place. It still doesn't make it a better connector that isn't going to pop out and just cause you grief. Yeah, this is... Yeah, it's it's your... No, it's not a matter matter of it popping out. It's the matter... It's the... um, It goes to a larger connector, which is going to be a bit more solid. It's going to have a lot more better tolerance for, you know, bad connections or a dodgy cable. It's also... Um, it's a, a port protector is the main thing. You really do not want to have that cable yanked laterally, left or right, okay, which is well, literally so just going to freaking screw your port. The, if somebody buggered the port, they'd bugger it on a 79 or $99 replaceable adapter port and not your real port. Yeah, exactly. You're all just right. all trying to protect the, what is it, an 1800, you know, multiple... So can I, mm. can I do a Wingrove here? We shouldn't have to worry about this in the first place. Yeah. This is fixing a problem Again, I shouldn't have to worry absolutely. about. Absolutely. But the, until the 5D Mark III comes out, and even when it does, this I, get, I guarantee you this is still going to be a problem. Okay. Or your 1DS, whatever, magical sort of new uh, high-end camera. I bet you're still going to have a problem with this. My 0DS. Yeah. It's still going to be sticking out the same same position on the camera, sticking out the same dicky little tiny little 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 non-professional, should never be on a set system. And As Tano would argue that the, the whole bloody camera should be on set for that purpose <laughs> this is true well gee okay well have you, you, okay don't even start that <laughs> they the, where is the, where <laughs> have you been to have you, do you you've been to yeah exactly you've been to canon's nab freaking you know uh presentations completely pushing the 5d into into production you know you go to their their NAB stand. There's like camera after camera built with all all kinds of lens, you know, and all rigged up to the nines and uh, with with professional DPs standing on on podiums talking endlessly about how they uh, used used this camera on set. You know. Anyway, that was two years ago. Moving on. Yeah. Um, and by the way, we're going to be at uh, at NAB next year, so we're not. Yeah. We're not going to be there exactly where we were before. But we're going to be there, yeah. Doing interesting things. Long range, heads up. Yep. Booked booked our accommodation last week. Yep. Do the same, please. Um, See you there. So, because you said in something, I can't was it was like last week's podcast. You said if I ever go to NAB again, and mm. someone said to me, "Is Jace not going to NAB? Does he like not you know want to go to no, NAB?" You know, and I was like, "I bloody hope he is," because I booked him an airline <laughs> ticket. <laughs> well, I think it was between that. That and and today that I found out that you had booked it. So yeah, I don't like to presume. And also, you it, know, it, it is um, 
awesome having you in Vegas for NAB. We Excellent. have a good time. Yes. And, and now we're in walking distance of the uh, main margarita bar. It's even more awesome. <laughs> you have to get arrested in taxis again. Um, you, we've got two red rooms. I think you should play yours first because okay. it's with the uh, director of photography and then I'll do post after that. But do you want to set this up for us? Yep, okay. So uh, Jeff Hall is the DP who shot Red Dog, who I've worked with before and uh, many times. He's um, done uh, a lot of fantastic work, some of the, you know, some of the great um, great films in, 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 in Australia. He did uh, well, he Chopper. Did Chopper, yeah, it launched... Yeah. Um... He did. He's done a fair few films. And he's a um, uh, in- really interesting chat uh, about Red Dog. Uh, which also then led into a few other things, led into Drift, which is the Sam Worthington surfing film, which is uh, only just finished uh, shooting here in Sydney, shooting with Alexa's epics in underwater housings and uh, uh, quite an interesting production in itself. We will no doubt hook up with him after that, uh, once that sort of production comes more to, more to, more to the fore, and we'll uh, have a chat with him closer to, the, closer to release of that film. But uh, it was a really interesting chat about... The selection of why you know choosing red one for um, a production in the desert, uh, choosing a red one for a production involving animals, um, and reasonably early led one. This about eighteen months ago or so. This uh, film was shot, and you know just shooting digital on set and um, contrast ratios, and yeah, so it was interesting, interesting chat. And here's Jeff. You are entering the red room. Well, congratulations on the film, Jeff. It looks sensational, gorgeous imagery, and uh, I guess, as people are often saying, it's one of those love letters to the outback. Oh, I guess you never, you know, you always have goals and uh, ideas how you want it to look, but you never really, uh, it's, especially outback films, you never really know what you're going to get because it's so weather dependent. Um, but I'm very happy with the look of the film. I never had any. Uh, concerns with the medium that we were going to use in the film because it was very funny early on the uh, producers had a lot of chat about you know uh you know we've budgeted the film at that stage they budgeted the film for red and then they were uh, very concerned about you know once they got cast and everything and they could see the the whole beast evolving and the film was going to happen towards the last stage of going um should we be shooting on red um, you know, should we shoot on film? And it was the producer hadn't done a film, a digital film before, and it never really concerned me at all. I was never, um, in fact, uh, preference probably would have been for me to shoot with red, really, because of uh, and the director as well, because we're dealing with a dog for yeah. starters. Uh, so being able to do multiple takes, being able to just leave the camera running is an enormous plus, whereas to do that on a, on a film project, you know, you'd need uh, a huge injection of cash and also just the uh, time it takes to change magazines and things would put you in a pretty sticky situation. Yeah. But um, in terms of the look of the film, the way the, uh, the camera performed, I was, yeah, I was really happy with it. I wasn't terribly surprised with it. Um in terms of how it ended up looking, um, uh, it's pretty much what I was after, really. But um, yeah, I'm very happy with it. And probably the only interesting, or interesting and, and downside to it, is um, 
when you you know you looked at you used to looking at uh, dailies and on uh, DVD or or whatever medium uh, in a digital uh, realm, and even when you're grading, you know you're in the uh, watching digitally projected images, and it's it's and it's also very difficult early on to do film tests. Although we did do film tests, you know, scan outs and things. Um, but it's it's really a big shock actually when you see the first print of of the film uh, being you know you see so much of it digitally and then all of a sudden comes the first print and there comes the uh, all of a sudden it's got grain on it <laughs> uh, which is really unusual because uh, you know uh, the contrast and the uh, color and everything stays you know quite true so mm. no surprises there. But this—it's uh, funny. The first time I saw it in the cinema, not really. Yeah, it was the first time I saw it in the cinema, which was in a small cinema in West Australia. I was on another film, and um, uh, all of a sudden, yeah, all the images have got grain over them, and you get used to that. You know, that's watching a movie. Well, it makes it film again at the end there. Yeah, which is also one thing that um, you know I was uh, telling the producers early on. You know, I was, I was reassuring them about the medium was a a fine format to shoot on and uh, I'd done a lot of commercials with the Reds at that stage and I was very comfortable with it and I'd done digital films before and the one thing, one of the big pluses was the thing, yeah, that when you do put it back onto film, it also um, takes on a lot of the uh, film characteristics as well. It does uh, soften it a little bit. Um, the grain tends to make your highlights halate a little more than what they do naturally on digital so there's a lot of pluses to it, but it is a shock. It is interesting when you see it. Uh, you know, you, all of a sudden the images uh, look substantially different to what you've seen them before. Well, we might touch on the whole film uh, demise thing towards the end, but, I mean, you're in the desert, there's dust, and some might say the decision to go with a camera that's got a fan in it with a tendency towards heat stroke uh, might be a foolish decision. True. Um, yeah, there are there are other formats that uh, or other platforms that I could have uh, chosen. Uh, but to be honest, uh, I think the I think the red one. You know, the camera was launched as a, as a sort of a prototype, and the software evolved along the way. And along the way, it got a, a lot of bad press because um, you know it had. Uh, things that needed to be modified, mm. and and the, one of the problems with the internet, I think, is that um, whatever goes on, it stays there forever. So someone will write in and say, "I used this camera on a film, and it broke down every day, or or something." For example, so people that don't know very a great deal about that camera will go on the internet and oh, look what they find: the camera is unreliable. Mm. Um, however, by the time uh, Red Dog came around, um, the Red One, I'm not sure what build we used, actually. I can't really recall what it was. But it was a very stable, very stable platform at that point in time. You were shooting to drives? We were shooting to drives, yes, and cards. Right. Using yeah. both. Right. Um, okay. Uh, a lot of handheld in the film. And I, I use an easy rig pretty much all the time. Um, not that all the film is that way, but a fair bit of it is. 
Mm-hmm. And did find that you know using drives every now and again, you know, just the cabling, uh, you know, you may get a dropout um, with the manhandling of the camera. So tended uh, you, yeah, use both use cards. Uh, generally tend to use cards on handheld stuff. Right. But um, I suppose um, yeah, getting back to heat issues and things like that uh, didn't really didn't really bother me. I, I thought I'd be able to handle it because. Um, uh, I hadn't had any problems with it myself. I hadn't had any problems with the camera on uh, various uh, projects. So I knew I could take three of them with me. So I had three bodies, two in the truck most of the time and one on set. And we had ice packs. We had uh, a very experienced um, camera team uh, that I'd worked on films before with. So I knew they'd be... Uh, totally up to protecting the camera and taking care of it. And also, to be honest, we weren't shooting in the Pilbara in the hottest part of the year. Top temperature was really about 30 degrees. Okay, good. Uh, Not as humid as what it can be. It was sort of, um, I think we were there uh, April. And to be honest, the weather was uh, really good. And the cameras uh, never, we never had a heat issue at all. And cameras actually performed brilliantly there was um uh i think we hardly had any data that uh you know data dropouts of any kind so um yeah it was really uh, i was totally faultless actually excellent we ended up running two reds uh most days in fact so we had really one spare yeah had no issues so lens wise you were shooting two to one i think um you were shooting spherically or scope Yes, spherically and uh, shooting to two four zero. Partly just weight of glass for handheld, or just availability these days. I think of glass is usually the issue. Yeah, availability of glass. Well, you know, available. I used Cook S fives. I used the first set of Cook S fives in the world, and that was the first film to be shot on the Cook S fives. So um, they're just as heavy as anamorphic. So it wasn't really a um, a weight issue. Um, availability of anamorphics is certainly a problem. I've had a lot of trouble trying to get anamorphics uh, for various projects. Um, and probably, you know, really just speed yeah. in terms of uh, uh, use. I do like anamorphics. Um, I think artistically I probably would love to shoot the, the film on um, anamorphics. However... I don't with you know dogs running around all over the place and having to move pretty quickly. Um, you know, I don't think you really could do it. As uh, although we had a, you know it was a forty day shoot, which is sort of luxurious in an Australian context. Um, I think it would be tough to do it in forty days with anamorphics. I think they do slow you down. So, having come from you know a, a strong film background, exposure-wise, how do you treat it these days? Do you like throw the meter away? You're just looking at histograms and um, and just trusting the monitor, or is there a bit of that um, film background still hanging in there? Uh, there's a little bit of the film background hanging in there when it comes to exposing digital, but not as much as uh, you know. It's 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 hard to sort of uh, wean yourself off it. Um, I think this year. I've, you know, I shoot a lot of commercials and I shoot um, generally about a film a year. And this year I think I've only 
done, I think, two film projects, yeah, two 35mm commercials this year. And, uh, you know, everything else has been Alexa, Red, um, yeah, Canon, mm. everything under the sun. Um, I do take my light meters to set with the ambition to use them and um, tend not to. It makes it easy to spot the DOP on the set. So that's him with yeah, light meters on his belt. Exactly. You've got to look like, you know, you know something that other people don't. Mm. So you've got to be able to pull out the spot meter and wave it around even if you don't have a battery in it. Yeah, but no, I'm kidding you. But the I think really the um, you know the light meter thing. I, I guess it also comes with experience, a lot you know, fair amount of experience. I don't sort of need to use light meters to know that if I put an 18k up, you know, um, 20 meters away, I've got a pretty good idea what sort of stop that's going to give me. Yeah, and then and I, and then if I've got that over there, I know that if I use you know, a four tube keener flow bounced off a bit of poly, that's going to give me enough fill. So, and that goes through the whole range of lights. So I guess you're in an advantage when, you're, when you've done a lot of film work where you can make your lamp choices and you know you're going to have the stop that you need. So I guess that's what, where light meters are handy when you, you know, you sort of go, okay, before you turn the cameras on or before the camera's even there, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I will need a shooting stop of about four, even if I'm going to shoot at 1.3. Mm. Um, so then your lamp choices are, you know, you know that you want these as your keys, these as your fills, these are what your prac sources are. Um, but it, so I guess through experience, I don't need to tend. I don't tend to need to wave a meter around anymore because I know that it'll be sort of, you know, I'll be getting two eights off a, a prac lamp from two meters away, roughly. Um, and in terms of the technology that I use with the cameras, yeah, I, I'm basically I, I'm a big fan of false color. I love the way that works. Um, and the histograms, yeah, basically those two tools are pretty much all I use. You know, it's hard to tell which way to to look with the traffic light, goalposts, and histograms, false color, raw check. Yeah, all, all of those things. I, I mean, I flip between the um, yeah, raw check and um, false color and histograms, but your eyes sort of scanning around as you as you go. But those tools uh, give you everything you need to know. Um, so I think they've sort of made. Uh, they haven't made light meters redundant at all, but I just tend not to use the light meters as much. I tend to, I like those tools. I think they're really, they're really good. It does make it easier to sleep at night. Yeah, no, I think they're. I particularly like false color, funnily enough, because it's just such a quick reference as to, um, uh, particularly when you're moving quickly and you know you don't, you know, you've got a, a reasonably, you know what the uh, the, the setup is, mm. but you but you may be concerned with where, where your highlights are going. And, you know, it's sort of like you can just quickly flip that on and you know exactly what's going on. Do you, for highlight protection, I mean, do you basically just protect those highlights or...? Yeah, I tend to find that um, particularly now with the uh, the cameras, the way they're getting more and more latitude. On Red Dog, um, you know, the uh, the new chip for the Red One hadn't come out. It was the old chip. And um, so, you know, the, the range there wasn't as, as large as it is now. This was non-MX? Yeah. Right. So I had to sort of watch it a little more on that, and the toughest thing on that film is that uh, the dog is, in fact, very dark. It's uh, it's a really dark dog. It's mm. In terms of a red kelpie, it's it's the darker end of the spectrum as red kelpies are. 
So, um, and funnily enough, the, the dog is almost identical colour to the iron ore rocks of the Pilbara. With digital for a start, but you've got strong high-ish light, dark dog, dark red dirt. You know, there's a lot of contrast in there. You uh, look like you're constantly fighting back with, with, with firepower. Yeah, it's true. The uh, There was a lot of contrast in the Pilbara. The... The dog is the same colour as the as the ground and and the rocks. The actors I had really no issues with um, lighting them. It was sort of standard daylight control. But the old Coco uh, needed reflector boards and you know HMIs like pointing straight into that dog mm. because to get some sort of reflection off the uh, fur wasn't. Uh, not an easy task. It's one of those. It was almost one of those classic sort of like old Hollywood movie scenarios where you, as a DP, you tend to you'd never go that way. Like you know, just blast the dog with a raw lamp. Mm. Um, but Red Dog was like that. It was uh, if the dog was backlit out in the uh, in in the desert, you'd have to like uh, hit it full on with a you know, say a four K, just full spot lens. Uh, straight at it, yeah. And, and fortunately, <laughs> uh, a dog has fur, and they're very forgiving. So you cannot, you can't see any shadows on it at all. So uh, basically, the uh, reflectiveness of the fur and the shine on it tends to kick back at you. So it ends up being, it ended up being a little bit like a hair commercial, where you'd also, you know, just get a uh, it, uh, reflector boards, hard, shiny side. Uh, three-quarter back, straight into the dog. And you literally couldn't overexpose the dog. You could just hit it with as much light as you could possibly throw at it. And uh, it would um, look, the more you threw at it, the better it looked. It would just get more sheen in the coat. It would stand out more from the rocks. And fortunately, uh, dogs aren't like children. They don't... uh, (laughs) Squint. Start squinting. <laughs> but um, particularly, I don't know if it's a Kelpie thing, um, but uh, you could put a literally put a HMI straight into the uh, straight at the dog, and it wouldn't wouldn't blink, wouldn't flinch. I don't yeah. under, I don't understand dogs' eyesight, but um, it was the sort of situation that would be very uncomfortable for any actor, um, and they and, and they yeah they wouldn't tolerate it, but. Um, uh, the dog had no problem at all, wouldn't, and that was a, that was a really interesting thing. I'd you know I'd never come across that before, but it, yeah, you could throw as much uh, light like a, a full reflector board mm. bouncing off the sun straight into the dog's like straight into the dog's eyes, wouldn't squint, wouldn't turn away from it, would just you know look straight at it. Eyes wouldn't water. I don't know. I just don't know how their eyesight works. Did you have to run a lot of NDs and then thus using hot mirrors? Yes, I was using hot, hot mirrors on it. Uh, I did uh, not as much as, you know, I've, I had to use a lot of um, NDs, but not certainly as much uh, as you do now, like with that uh, with that chip. Um, it's not like the, uh, the film I just did was with um, Alexis. Mm-hmm. That, that's, uh, it's bizarre now, this, um, you know, cameras with 800 ASA and, using them in daylight and you're using, you know, 2.1s, uh, NDs with a polar and so-and-so and so-and-so on and yeah. on, you know, 10 stops, 11 stops of ND pretty much every day I was using on this last film. And that's, uh, that's interesting. 
you touched on the rushes before about uh, really not seeing anything until the end. Did you have much in the way of dailies viewing? Was it just a laptop on the weekend in the hotel room or? Yeah, that was an interesting, um, watching dailies on Red Dog, we had DVDs that we would um, uh, have delivered. And then, yes, it was a matter of going over the DVDs of an evening. So that's really the only, uh, and of course, you know, uh, uh, you know, you'd be f- maybe a week behind in your dailies, so weeklies, right? Uh, but given that was just really the tyranny of distance, we didn't have editors with us. They were the editors were based in, um, uh, I think, in I'm trying to think where the editors were. Where were I think we were in editors were in Sydney, I think. Um, anyway, so we yeah, the dailies on Red Dog were uh, DVD and a fair gap of, say, a week before you'd see anything. Mm. However, um, you know, we'd be getting feedback from editors as well. The editors hadn't done a film on Red Dog. On, uh, Red, on Red Dog. <laughs> they hadn't done a, a film with uh, Red before, and that was interesting. I had uh, uh, endless discussions about... Uh, you know, uh, every now and again, in, um, you'll get that sort of skipping thing, where basically it's basically the hard drive not being able to cope with um, right. the amount of information. So if you get a panning shot, you'll get this lag and stuff. Uh, it was just drove me crazy because it, it was quite. You know, you'd look at it on camera, you'd play it back on camera, all fine, and then you'd get all these editing notes. Oh, the cameras are doing this skipping thing, and this gets back to my point earlier on about too much information online sometimes. Uh, you know, oh, we've seen this on online, and they'd send through all these examples of the stepping and everything, and, and you know, you'd be able to say, and I'd say, well, let me tell you, it doesn't do that. It doesn't step. It's not a panning speed thing. Um, you're reading, you know, you're reading that information the wrong way. Yeah, sure, if you pan really quickly, you'll get uh, the rolling shutter effect, but this is not the rolling shutter effect. This is just your editing equipment not being able to keep up with the amount of information. <laughs> End of story. You know, don't talk to me about it again. And uh, and then it just kept there. Oh no, we've got it. We've we've sent it. You know, I've had conversations with people in London, and this is a major problem, and so on and so forth. And it's like, no, it's not. Anyway, ended up to uh, satisfy that we had to do a film out test through Weta in New Zealand, and you know, of course, it comes back and there's no stepping, and uh, that kind of thing just drives me. Crazy. That was, you know, incredible. Yeah, the being panicked by uh, editors or a Russia's bench check uh, never really ends, does it? Yeah, and it is. I guess it's that thing, you know, because it turns up in the dailies too. You know, you get the stepping in the dailies because, and that's sometimes, you know, look, there's Because they made the dailies. They made the dailies. There's a million ways to get around that, and it depends on what sort of hardware you're using and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's one of those funny things where, you know, I can look at it and go, okay, I know what that is. It's not an issue. And also, you know, I've seen it on the day. So I've seen it through camera and I've seen it played back through camera. So I know yeah. what's going on. So, um, and also, you know, the data wrangler in the truck is checking everything and, uh, you know, there's no issues. And you can watch it in the truck and go, what's this stepping thing you're talking about? So you look at it, check it up in the truck. Everything's fine. No yeah, problem. No, not doing uh, it. Uh, anyway, that's an interesting side of the technology that, uh, can be can, can just go around in circles for weeks, yeah. but but the day yeah the dailies we were getting on DVD and uh, you know I was fine with that. Well, I guess also you know I know what I'm getting out of the camera on the day. 
Um, I've got a pretty good idea what it's going to look like when it gets to print. Um, just through experience, you know, you know, you're going the contrast is going to increase. It's going to get a bit softer, um, and so forth and so on. But you know, so as long as I know that, like with your negative, so to speak, as long as I know the raw image is getting what I want to get, then I'm happy. You've just shot a show on Alexa, done plenty of film and shot red DSLRs. Where do your preferences lie? Do you think? Well, I just I've just finished a film in Western Australia called Drift. And on main unit, I had two Alexas, and then uh, it's a very big surf movie. So in the surf, I used two of uh, the new Epics, um, had underwater housings built for those, and which was, you know, uh, a very interesting uh, adventure, I suppose, because it's totally new technology and putting them in underwater housings, it was, you know, un- unknown what was going to happen. But um, it uh, it worked, so that was good. But choices there were I wanted the Alexas uh, as the main unit cameras because I knew it was a really proven platform and I really enjoyed working with it on a number of commercials and I didn't need to do any slow motion on the main unit drama, whereas in the surf unit um, I love the super slow-mo look that phantoms give in uh, in in a surf, yeah. However, we couldn't uh, access um, budgetary really couldn't access phantoms for that amount of time, and and a few other sorts of things. The production uh, was sort of had to be digital uh, in the surf uh, from the surf sort of point of view, surf side of it. From not having to stop to change film all the time. Uh, a number of issues, a number of things. Uh, producers definitely wanted to go digital. Um, uh, my preference, in actual fact, would have been to shoot uh, with the very two very experienced surf photographers in uh, Western Australia, and they had their own sixteen mil surf equipment and totally familiar with it and very experienced with it. And to be honest, uh, I would go uh, that way. Interesting. Um, in combination with digital. Um, but uh, anyway, producers weren't that keen on it uh, and wanted to go digital. So the only digital platform that I could see that would work at the moment would be the Epic because I wanted that super slow-mo ability to go super slow-mo quickly up to 300 frames. Uh, Also, the Epics had the advantage of being 5K, so you could shoot wider and then blow the image up to stabilise it, uh, which I thought would be a great thing. Um, and had a number of advantages over sort of red ones, just being a much more compact camera. So that was the way we went. So the uh, Epics um, was a difficult uh, pathway because it was uh, mainly because of underwater housing availability. The main uh, housing builder in Australia wasn't able to supply the housings in time, and it was... So we had to get two prototypes made in the States and uh, they weren't ideal, but they they worked in the end. And uh, I, I weren't, you know, I wasn't really shooting on that unit, but I used them, used the underwater cameras twice and uh, towards the end of the show where a few of the bugs had been ironed out and they worked really well. So, and the Epic worked really well. It was great with one red uh, brick battery in there. Yep. 
Um, you could, uh, yeah, just basically with a with a card and a brick battery, you could go out and turn the camera on and shoot for about uh, around about two three hours. Pretty unheard of in the uh, surf community, really, to be able to do that kind of thing. It's a real boon for them. The size of that Epic and its battery consumption is going to be a, a major plus. It's going to be a pretty interesting camera to work with, I think. You know, I really didn't have a great deal to do with it, but like I say, the day I went out with it, strapped it in the in the housing, turned the thing on, and then shot at a frantic pace. You know, got so much stuff shot. It was uh, it was great. Uh, we're, we're probably going to have to have another whole conversation on that one alone, I think, with Post and combining Epic with uh, Alexa. Shooting on the Alexa was, uh, you know, amazing, like I was saying before, you know, Having to use, having to use eleven stops of ND all the time, and then because I, you know, just when I wanted to get that look uh, of the really the best of the S fives, mm. and then um, and also the the shooting at night with at eight hundred ASA wide open, the sort of things that you you get digitally that you could never get on film in the past. Well, you could get it on film, but you get a pretty grainy, ordinary image, whereas. Um, uh, the the digital look of that camera wide open at, at night time is just phenomenal. I haven't yet been able to put my finger on it yet why DPs so are drawn to the Alexa over, you know, well, we have a lot of choices now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like the look of it, but I don't know that it's – I also did tests uh, just, you know, like basic chart tests and, you know, people walking around in – in uh, interior, exterior sort of things with the Epic and the Alexa side-by-side just really quickly at, uh, at Limac, um, uh before the shoot. And images straight out of the cameras at that point, the Alexa was all over the Epic. Mm. It, it just looked so much better. But then with a quick tweak and a grade, I couldn't tell them to apart um, when I got the like a, a graded DVD back. Yeah, you know, I really couldn't see any difference between them at all, um, and that was just a very quick, you know, roughly trying to make them look the same, pretty much. Yeah, but you think there is an Alexa look? Uh, I well, all I can say is I like the look of it, and whether there's an Alexa look in by the time you go through all the posts, yeah, I'm uh, hard to say. But what you get straight out of the camera. Um, is a is a pretty amazing look. I don't know. I just I, and I think really most of that is the latitude of the camera. Mm. Um, it's you know it's it's just surprising. I just find it a whole new ball game. I, I did a wardrobe makeup test on the startup drift, which was um, at the back of a shop. Basically, if you imagine sitting at the back of like a, a shop, and someone walks in the front door, so the exterior was. Um, X, uh, F64 and a half, you know, total bright sunshine. Mm. And they walk in through the doors, they come in th- through the shop, and then I had that gradually exposing down. So I'd have some lights at the front of the shop that were sort of like at eights. Then as they got deeper coming towards the camera, they're getting towards fours. And then as they got up to the camera, they were at about 1.3, and I would have been exposing it at about four. So I had a one a tungsten one K pup 
bounced off the wall, then through a diffusion frame, and that was giving me a stop of uh, 1.3. Then I'd underexposed that three three stops, so shooting at around fours. Mm. And then the latitude of that shot looking to the exterior was like looked totally fine. People coming in still with detail on the exterior, coming in, going through all that exposure range and then coming right up to being three stops under with a you know, hot background. Looked beautiful. How can people find you or find out more about you? Uh, There's just my website, which is uh, very out of date at the moment, but it's uh, com. Well, thanks again, Jeff. Thanks for chatting. I appreciate it, man. No worries, Jason. Good to talk. Thanks for that, Jace. Well, actually, I wanted to follow up and with thank that. thank you, Jeff. Thank oh, you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And so I wanted to follow up with that, with the discussion with whoever graded it, because obviously, as you heard in that interview, <laughs> interesting problems with dark dogs. It's just your point that I'm about to cross to our second red room, uh, which is with Alec Medrick, who's the DI colorist at Rising Sun Pictures. Now, they did tons of visual effects work at Rising Sun, including Harry Potter and all this kind of stuff. But in fact, it was about the grey that I wanted to discuss because not only was there that issue that you heard there with the light, and you'll hear me tripping up as I try to be politically correct in the middle of this discussion because I have a friend who is Zimbabwean and and photographing her in bright light, I had the same phenomenon that he was kind of talking about, though I didn't shove huge amounts of bright light at her. But you know what I mean, like that same problem. But they had another problem, which I also thought was interesting to talk to Alex about, which is that Alex had to deal with multiple dogs playing the one dog. Right, yeah. And get that consistency that, of course, you look to a colorist to do. Mm. Um, anyway, let's cross now to our second red room with uh, Rising Sun Pictures DI colorist. You are entering the red room. So, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. No problem at all. So, um, we're really keen to talk to you about this, uh, what is, after all, in Australian terms, a huge kind of breakout uh, hit. Um, can you tell us how you guys got involved with the project and how you approached it? Sure. Um, well, we we basically have graded the director's last or two films before this one. So this is the third time I've worked with Crave and um, we get along really quite well. So it was exciting. When, the first time I got to see the, uh, the first offline cut of Red Dog, it was quite exciting because I knew the potential it had and I was very excited because Crave's done a lot of a lot of good films, but nothing that's uh, reached this mass appeal. So it was really exciting um, to see that. And, uh, yeah, I was very much looking forward to working on it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a film that I imagine presented some interesting uh, aspects in terms of uh, colour grading. And also, of course, just for people that don't know, this isn't a huge budget film because obviously Australian cinema doesn't tend to produce, you know, the kind of mega budget stuff. Um, what was the pipeline that the film was shot on and, and how did you approach it? Well, basically, it was shot mainly on the red camera. Um, we were actually involved quite heavily from, from, the, from the ground up. We, we did the, a lot of the, looking at a lot of the first camera tests back in the early days before they even started shooting it. So looking at how things reacted to when we looked at them in the different viewing environments, in the DI environment. So we were able to get a good... A good estimate of how that was that was going to play out. Um, the as as it's still we're still a little bit away from getting rid of uh, film uh, in cinemas, so this is an, an interesting thing for us and a ch- good challenge for us because there was the 
the digital acquisition on the red camera, which is very digital and very mathematically perfect, whereas when we printed it a film, film has a lot of chemical colour biases and a lot of things that introduce different colours into it. And the interesting thing with red, when they look at the offlines and the dailies and all that stuff, it it looks very smooth and very 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 neat from black to white. If you shoot a grey ramp, it's going to come out black to white, whereas put that on film, it doesn't look quite the same. So we one of our biggest technical challenges that we wanted to achieve here was not to start with a picture that didn't look like what they'd been looking at in the dailies for a long time, but we still wanted to give it the film look. Right. So basically, um, Mike Channery, who's the color scientist who we get in when we, we set up a DI, who also was the one of the founders of um, the Cinespace, yep. uh, the Rising Sun Research Cinespace. We we worked we worked and talked and came up with a lot of different lights, and he actually came up with a custom light that mimicked film, mimicked the film gamut, mimicked the brightness of film, mimicked the same sort of gamma curve as film a real film stock has, not a, not an ideal like Cineon curve, but mimicked the real a real film stock, and we used but didn't have any of the color biases, so that allowed us to create and grade in a color space that looked like film, yet it wasn't film. And it didn't have it. It just looked the footage looked like a better, a more filmic version of what the dailies was. So it's, it got us off on a really good starting point. So can I just back up and work through it kind of technically, just so I'm on the same page? So it was an yep. MX Red One that you were shooting on, not on Epic. Um, no, I believe it was just just the standard Red One. I don't think it was the uh, MX chip. Oh, really? And then that was therefore I presumably shot uh, well. What, I should ask, I guess, what aspect ratio and what what resolution was it? Like four K at two to one, or what did you shoot at? Yeah, it was it was shot as a sixteen nine four okay. K image. We did all our processing and all our internal workings at the the two K, and the the film was finished at two K. So you get the R three D files. Um, yep. Who converts them to something for editorial, and what? And then, sort of, where are you conforming them? What's the? How does those R three Ds move through the pipe? Okay, so basically. From from the start, we actually did process the rushes at RSP as well, which we set up a completely different place before the DI just to process the rushes and hand them off to editorial. There were two editorials. One was here in Adelaide, and the other one where the final film was, was edited, finished, was in Melbourne. So we just ran them all through. We ran them through the pipe in their normal sort of Rec. 7090 color space, debarring them to full HD. I believe we did ProRes QuickTimes. Right. Sent them off to editorial with the time codes and everything embedded in them. They did their creative edit and then they sent us back reference quick times and EDLs for which we could conform in the DI. Right. So the new coder takes the R3Ds and then conforms that to an EDL or an XML or from what you get It was an EDL, yeah. Right. So the I believe the film was finished the the edit was finished on a Lightworks. Right. Which um we then just simply got an EDL back. And yeah, it, it it uses all the red material natively. It, it uses the red um, the red camera API, which we can utilize in whatever way we see fit to to do the the grade in the way we we wanted to. So when you're talking about those custom LUTs, were they applied yep. at the point? Because obviously the the Rec 709 is terrific for the workflow for. Uh, offline, it's obviously standard yep. HD, but you're looking yep. for the cinema output and the color yep. space and the Rec. 709 is not necessarily ideal for a cinema projection, as you mentioned. So is that when that light was applied, when you were starting to conform yep. the R3Ds? Yeah, so 
so yeah, up until that point, we weren't using, we were just using the straight Rec 7.0 output of the RED. But then once we got into the DI, we'd spent quite a bit of time working out what the best way to debayer and to turn these, the bayered files into something that would go, would go to film. Right. And you were working in 2K, which is obviously quite standard. But in terms of uh, having the 4K, was there any opportunities or any needs to take any of the 4K and like blow them up a bit and before well, you went to 2K or...? Yeah, we definitely did. We definitely, for for the VFX com form, there was quite a few shots where there was some hefty zoom-ins. Um, and we did turn over a lot of a lot of the VFX shots at 4K to the visual effects vendor so they were able to zoom in on the image as much as they needed to. And and those, uh, it's obviously not a heavy effects film, but those uh, effects shots, were they being worked out as open EXRs or what was the sort of way that you were handing those files over the turnover on those we we very much found that surprisingly or not surprisingly that the the established sort of dpx log workflow was what we chose to grade the red dog in we we did tests we did linear light exr tests we did all the red log tests i think it was just a little bit before all these new red the, the, all the new red formats came out with right. the new red API and red color two and all and red film and all those ones came out. So it was before that, but we actually used the PD log six eight five transform in the red in the red API. Right. Even though technically it's probably on mathematically the lowest quality log format, but it just gave by far the best results and was was so flexible. And everything else we tried was just creatively as well as just the pictures on the screen did not turn out anywhere near as, as good and they weren't as gradable. So we used the very traditional log log encoding sort of workflow as close to what you would get if you were to scan our log image off the film. And just before we get into any of the creative on, on Red Dog, the film itself, uh, you actually separately to the film have done open EXR functionality tests with your new coder and a VFX pipeline at, at Rising Sun, haven't you? Absolutely, yes. Yes, no. If you were if you were moving down an effects pipeline uh, or effects intensive film, just personally speaking, now like I walk in off the street and I'm yeah. and, and I'm not me, I'm somebody that, with lots of financial backing. Um, would you be advocating that? Do you feel like uh, an open EXR pipe uh, off those converted files does that linear workflow in the newest sort of sense of the word excite you, or is it you still feel like uh, you're not seeing enough benefit to move over to that? Um, I. I it depends. If you're talking about just doing a grade, then I, I say potentially no. I, I'm not excited enough by currently by doing an open EXR grade. I'm not seeing just the creative looks and the creative development that goes into that. And in, in the most case, anyway, the controls of grading in linear light are not set up for any DI system in the world that I know of to actually be able to grade in linear light. And you're normally grading in some kind of gamma encoded or log space anyway and then converting back to open EXR or a linear light linear to light format so I'm um, for our VFX stuff and our balance grading of our internal VFX shots I can see huge benefits and huge savings in workflow time running things through something like a film master just to get the neutral grades out in a in a hurry but in terms of doing a grade I personally I still I still think logs the way to go yeah because I think the promise is that if you are doing uh, say, uh, which obviously Rising Sun does a lot of, uh, computer graphics that goes into live action, then of course yeah. the maths of the computer graphics tend to be fairly linear maths yeah. and so that would 
make it easier to match to the to the stuff that you're getting off the the background plates. But as you're saying, if you're in terms of your grading, um, yep. you don't want to have any limit to your creative flexibility. So yeah. So let's discuss yeah. that creative stuff for a second. What were the sort of uh, creative challenges away now from the technical on uh, on Red Dog? And maybe you could just, for people that haven't seen the film, just explain some of the lighting conditions that uh, the film was shot in. Sure. Um, it was shot mainly in South Australia as well as the Pilbara, which is in Western Australia. The Pilbara is a nice, beautiful landscape with really, really bright red dirt and really, really strong colours and beautiful blue skies and all this sort of stuff. The sections that were shot in South Australia were somewhat not as as colourful and a lot of the stuff due to the weather of during the shoot was also not very bright and vivid. So there was quite a big challenge to make the stuff that was shot in South Australia look as as Pilbara-ish or as Western Australian-ish as possible. Um, the director actually came up with a, a really nice, I think it was 70 or 80 page, um, a document on how the film was to look, um, which had a huge amount of reference photos and a huge amount of stuff to, to draw on, which was really, really, really beneficial to have. Um, so creatively, we spent a lot of time just tweaking how much how much colour we could get out of everything. So it was very saturated, very warm, which which definitely lends itself well to to the look of the, the Pilbara, which was really good. It wasn't a desaturated look. It was a very family-friendly, bright, happy, colourful grade. Um, it was interesting creative, creatively that when you put so much red and so much warmth into a picture, that after a while you, you get through and you watch a few minutes of the film and all of a sudden it becomes very same. So we did have to spend a lot of time putting all the other colours back in as well. And the stronger you could make your blues, the stronger you could make your greens, the stronger you could make all the other colours that weren't the red, the, the more red the red would actually look. And, and in terms of the star of the film, now, if, if somebody's just seen the poster, the dog looks very red yeah. uh, in colours. But I think, is it Coco is the actual name of the dog that was the... That's correct. That, that was the main dog, Coco, yes. And, and Coco is a gorgeous uh, Kelpie, but isn't actually super red. It's actually quite dark. So in many respects, I imagine that from a grading point of view, you had to be careful about not losing some of the subtlety in uh, in the dog's sort of incredibly expressive and gorgeous face. Or, or did you have enough light that that wasn't a problem? Because it seems like it would go dark quickly. Yeah, no, it's very true. I mean, they were very mindful of that on set as well. They had, in some shots, um, you can quite obviously see there is a, a hero dog light to light up the side of the dog to make it make it just kick and not fall into a very dark colour quickly. We did spend an awful lot of time um, pulling pulling secondary grades on the dog to make the dog a nice stronger red than than he is naturally. Because in a shot where you've got, say, the actors hugging the dog and you've got that extremely sort of strong, clean, let's face it, unpolluted uh, light from from that side of Australia, um, the shadows, you know, the, the quality of light, uh, I imagine, would get um, quite contrasty quite quickly. And, Indeed. And, of course, if people are hugging a dog or down with a dog, they're going to almost be shadowing the dog. You've got a whole lot of issues. Um, was it, was it uh, anything that you found – I mean, I'm trying to – without trying to sound any way rude, was it any way like uh, grading either an Aboriginal or an African-American or a Native Australian, like someone that is a, a person of darker skin colour? I'm not trying to be rude here, but 
like I'm just trying to work out what the approach is to grading because normally you don't get a lead actor in uh, in those sort of darker colours when they're a Caucasian. It's really does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Um, it was definitely somewhat of a challenge. I mean, I there is a lot of play. There's a lot of a lot of shots where I could just pull a key and just be a bit bit like bit picky about the key and the values and I mean when you're doing secondary grading it's not the same as pulling a key on a green screen and making it perfect for visual effects it's a tool that you can you can kind of get away with a, a fair bit um, but there were definitely shots where I had to go in and I had to manually like rotoscope the dog and just to get that just to get that key it was actually usually a lot of the night stuff when there was like you said there's a lot of darker colors in the shot as well and it was hard to pull a key off of off of the dog because of all the black and other darker areas around around him. And and Coco was the main dog, but I presume there were some occasions where other dogs were shot. I mean, on any normal film, you would you know sort of have other dogs to sort of yep. substitute in. Was there any issues in trying to match their colours? And because uh, obviously the audience wants to see that as the one main star. Yeah, absolutely. There was there was a few shots of the older red dog right near the end, which quite funnily, um, that dog had a particularly light-coloured... Um, the bottom of his feet were quite light-coloured, as well as the around his groin area. He had a quite a, a light patch. So I did spend a little bit of time making those not so obviously white, which which took a little bit of time. And away from the dog itself, what about just sort of a general, uh, I mean, how much work did you, for example, have to do on the skies and the sort of the landscape stuff to uh, to get what you wanted? Um, I don't think there were many shots that I didn't pull a key on the sky to put more blue into it. Um, I pretty much doubt there was any shots where there's a blue sky that weren't secondary graded. Um, so it was a significant it was a significant challenge and pretty much every shot in the film, I believe, will have at least some sort of secondary grading done on it. But because of the warmness, it just the warmness did save a lot of time because I could use that warmness to get the right feel out of the skin tones very early on. So I was kind of always in a position where I could get the people feeling what, what I felt was the correct colour and then move on to the, the surrounding, the secondary things that were important in the, in the picture. So in the new coda, I guess uh, sort of a more general question, but maybe you can find an example from the film. It's like, what is it that you kind of love about it? What is it that you kind of, what's the joy of it in terms of creative grading? Of the, of the new coda system itself? Yeah, and just how you, you know, you, you like to work with it. Um, it, it is, it's, it's amazing when you go and try and do something on someone else. On, on another system or do something on something else that's just not quite set up the right way, it does give you a creative a creative way of moving through stuff rather quickly, like its ability to group shots and just to, or recall grades of other shots and just just continually move along quite flexibly and obviously your control surfaces do add a huge amount of um, feel. To doing the grade and you can just you don't have to worry about pushing your mouth a little bit more and watch your screen you can just have your hands on the on the balls and rings and just be moving quite naturally and looking up at the screen and watching the colors turn into the the ones you were hoping so yeah no it's it's definitely it's definitely a good system for running through things quite fast um what is the actual control panel that you're using which one are you um 
the we bought the system just before the new new code of precision panels came out, which I'd love to get my hands on. <laughs> the one but with it, the animating buttons. Yeah, but it's um, but yeah, we we've chosen it's the the Digital Visions Valhall panels, the right. the ones that were out just before that. We got the full the full four set. Um, and uh, so, can you tell us the range of stuff that you know you're primarily working? Because obviously, Rising Sun is well known for its work um, as a contributor on major uh, feature films of a visual effects variety. Uh, but as you said, you'd also been grading uh, other films. What's the sort of work that you're primarily uh, looking at? In terms of the grading stuff? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at sort of, I guess they're low, low to medium budget Australian films is what we tend to focus um, our efforts on. We usually use existing um, contacts that we have throughout the film industry. Um, usually somehow spawns off something we have locally here in South Australia. Although Creeves from Sydney, the first film that we graded of his was produced and uh, the producer was South Australian, who we knew quite well. So that's how we sort of got in the door with that one. And for those sorts of budgets, because I think a lot of people are really interested in that um, space, that kind of independent space, is, do you have an advice to filmmakers and DOPs in terms of you know knowing what you can do in grading? Is there any advice you have or even, I guess, common mistakes that you see that, um, that maybe less experienced filmmakers uh, can get into trouble over when trying to obviously produce really high-quality work on a tight budget? Yeah, sure. I mean... I definitely, I definitely think it's you don't want to leave post production till the till post. You want to get people involved as early as you can. Like on Red Dog, we were involved in a lot of the early camera tests and various things. There's a lot of things. For example, a current example is the is is it something we we're, we're um, grading that you, that was shot in the Canon 7D. Um, there are some technical technical of release specific setups for that camera to allow it to act in a more filmic way. Um, so understanding that and understanding that process by talking to whoever's going to be doing the colour grading and the finishing before you even shoot the film is imperative because if you don't choose it and if you don't shoot in a way that is is compatible to your grade, then you're going to obviously suffer to some extent and what you can do when you get to the when you get to the grade. And do you think there's anything uh, in terms of shooting on the red that you'd offer as advice? Because uh, uh, again, a lot of you know independent films are using the red for its uh, great flexibility. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely am a fan of the red camera. I think it's a it's a very good camera and can be, and you can get some really excellent results from it. Just just the amount of sharpness and the quality that that the red can have. I'm not a DOP, and I and I'm not quite sure. Um, exposure levels versus film but if you, if as long as you set up your your monitoring right and looking in what you see you get on your picture on your on your um video playback as long as you've got a relatively good monitor is is pretty similar to what you're going to be able to get in the di it's not a huge that well, release the red we 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 used it was not a huge amount of stuff in the blacks and whites that you don't see so you want you want to do a nicely exposed, nicely exposed picture to to get good results. I think. Sorry. Well, look, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. It's an incredibly funny, but also moving film. I, I don't want to give away much about why it's so moving because I don't want to spoil it for audiences. Because obviously, a film like this is going to grow over time. Um, 
and grow, especially when it hits uh, secondary markets like uh, DVD and iTunes and stuff. But if people haven't seen it, they should definitely see it. And you guys have done a great job on it. So thank you so much. Not a problem at all. Appreciate your time. See ya. No problem. Excellent. Thank you, Alex, for giving us that other side of the story. So I think that sort of those two sort of interviews really kind of encompass exactly what RC is about, I think. It's great. So, look, um, we're going to do some Twitter shout-outs and stuff and then tell you about the 100th episode coming up. Um, but do you want to do the blog? Yes. Okay. So uh, our blog link, I think, is sort of a little bit more, bit of a VFX uh, bent for the or a post bent for uh, these two. VFX blog. Uh, dot com is uh, a, a link that's a little bit closer to home, Mike. Well, yeah, it's it's Ian who works for us, but Ian actually came to work for us because he did this blog. But Ian flags stuff there that he's found around the net that's of interest, and and it's become very popular over the years because Ian has good taste. Yeah, and you know it's a lot of behind the scenes, a lot of breakdowns of scenes, you know, making of some very interesting links as to you know putting crowds into uh, Moneyball and uh, some interesting some interesting stuff on uh, making uh, real steel. So yeah, it's very cool, and he's he's uh, diligently updates it. So it's very good. VFXblog.com. Now, Thank if you. you're going to do post, I'm going to do role reversal and, and hit your. Uh, side of the market because I want to actually flag Naked Communications in our Twitter feed. Now, I think the only Twitter feed that they've got is the New York Twitter feed, which is Naked NY. But um, uh, you've, you've done work for Naked? I have, yes, indeed. They're um, not just TVC, I guess they're sort of in all forms of uh, uh, the advertising world, you know, be it um, online, offline. Yeah, I actually did a. Um I went to a con- I'm going to rat hole now, but I went to a conference uh, last week, which was the Promax BDA conference. For those of you that maybe at the other side of the game and don't know this bit, this is a, like a kind of a design and broadcast promo conference. And uh, so, you know, I love going to these things because I like sort of doing stuff slightly out of my comfort zone. Been there many times, especially in the LA um, when I used to do promos back in the day. Used to do iDents and stuff. But I always enjoy them because they have really good speakers and it's a well-run organization. So this one, um, this year, sorry, uh, we had uh, someone speaking there from Naked and they were really, really phenomenally interesting and that's all going to come up in um, some FX Guide stuff coming up. But Naked do amazing stuff. I'm going to tell you an anecdote if I can. It's got nothing to do with digital cinematography, but it's pretty funny. Um, So so they had a... Why I like these guys is they think in terms of both understanding stuff from a research point of view but actually just from being incredibly creative what i don't like is when someone's really creative and just completely poo-poo's research as being a complete waste of time but of course the other thing we hate is someone that's slavish to research and just comes up with same yeah. old same old yeah so these guys kind of are brilliant in the sense they do both so they um understand why somebody does stuff and then they come up with stuff that's completely original creative and genius mm. um and it's not, it's not nothing to do with us. But anyway, so they had a campaign they wanted to do for people stopping speeding in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw this, but... Yeah, the speed kills. Yes. And so what happened is that in this country, um, there's a government organization that obviously manages that. And uh, they only had $60,000 for a PR campaign. Now, I'm just retelling Adam's story from the conference. So I probably won't do it justice, but... Um, $60,000 and they wanted to get a lot of media attention around this idea of slowing down and so instead of trying to just tell people hey stop slowing down and with $60,000 it's not going to get you very far 
Uh, they came up with this brilliant idea and they found a town in regional Australia called the town of Speed. And they actually set up this thing whereby they, they filmed like effectively like uh, making of little uh, instructional videos and, and little ads and stuff to say that if the town had 10,000 uh, likes on Facebook, they would change the name of the town to, to Speed, Speed Kills. Kills instead of Speed. And then they filmed everyone up there saying... And, and um, the reason I think I thought of it is it's very much your cinema style, right, that you've been doing some of lately, mm. which is real people in a very kind of honest to camera kind of way. Yeah. And, uh, and it was so gangbusters that, that the day that they actually launched it, um, they got 25,000, I think it was. I might get the numbers wrong, but it's like way over what they wanted to yeah. just... No, it was 15,000 likes in the first day. So one day out of the gate, they got so much free well, publicity that's about it. it. You're, now, you're renamed. To, yeah, and so they go on the radio then to cash in on this publicity to frog for a good cause, right? And so they're, they're like doing radio shows and everyone wants to talk to them because it's such a good story, which is, yeah, of course... Yeah, snowballs and gives you way more money than your 60,000, whatever, bought. Anyway, so apparently, and I'm going to get his name slightly wrong, but I think the guy's name was Bob Down. Um, but Bob Down goes on, and he's the mayor of Speed, now called Bob Speed Kills. And this is the thing, right? Bob goes on national radio and someone phones in and they're like, oh, Bob, you're a good guy. And yeah, well, your town is on the map now, mate, but it's got a different name. And someone phones <laughs> up and goes, hey, Bob, you should change your name from Bob Down to Bob Slowdown. And he goes, I will. If we get 50,000 likes on Facebook, I'll change my name. And so the next day they got 70,000 likes on Facebook. And so Bob had to change his name to Bob Slows Down in the town of Speed Kills. And they reckon they got $6 million worth of free advertising out of this for the $60,000 run. And they got an enormous amount of goodwill. And the demographic that was mainly on Facebook doing it was the target demographic of like uh, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. That is right? bizarre, really. But isn't that good, Interesting. though? Interesting. No, isn't it's terrific. I hadn't expected that the target demographic would actually be the ones. That I would have thought it would have been like the parents sort of, you know, the parents of the teens of the town rather than, no. you know, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, interesting. Naked Bits is the... Um, is the Twitter feed for the Australian oh, is it? Naked Communications. And, and houseofnaked.com is their kind of um, newsletter. Yeah, it's a very cool newsletter. It's a very cool newsletter, yeah. And same, uh, similar style follows through to the Australian, uh, the Australian newsletter as well. So that's uh, Naked Bits for uh, twitter.com slash naked bits for the Australian um, uh, and I, and I chapter out, of, of Naked who are responsible for the speakers. I, I mentioned Naked New York. So like their clients include people like American Express, Coca-Cola, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, Google. I mean, they're like Samsung. They've got like a lot of Nokia, NBC type big, big But it is very, you know, it's very relevant. I mean, I film, for me at least, and the people that I speak to, deal with, etc., all of their work and projects and the interesting projects are drifting away from you know tvc land and it has become it's turning into this sort of more interesting projects of like going to the town of you know of, of speed and doing the mini docos stuff from at least in my scope i could be completely wrong and probably you know people around the world are probably just going no i don't see it but it seems here that it's an interesting and very welcome shift to this sort of more documentarian, more sort of um, filmic kind of less advertising, less in-your-face advertising kind of projects are springing up from companies like Naked rather than the, you know, massive, um, which obviously still happens as well, you know, the massive multi-million dollar kind of um, um, uh, Ridley Scott sort of, you know, multi-million dollar TVCs. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that I like about it is that see, because I'm a little hater of people that adopt new stuff and then do it incredibly badly because mm. they just don't get it. And I was reading a blog post and someone was saying, like, if you have a corporate Twitter feed, you don't want to post stuff like, hey, do you see the new real Quote steel the film day. on the weekend? You know, like, and it's like, you know, I, or had a great lunch. And it's like, I'm sorry, do I need, yeah. you know, you major corporation, whoever, I'm not going to pick on someone to get it wrong, but, you know, to give me that kind of stuff? No, I want it to be relevant and interesting. And... And I don't also want it to be just, well, they're going to use a Twitter or a Facebook to be exactly the same as they were on television and just plug something with a kind of very... um, But now they think they're edgy because they're doing it on Twitter. But in fact, it's just really dull. It's like putting up a billboard that says, please buy my cheese. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, um, sorry. But when you get a really brilliant billboard, like one that's got real grass growing on it, that's just incredibly innovative that makes you just stop and go, oh, my God, I wish I'd thought of that. That is mm. just genius. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so anyway, I think that the stuff that you're talking about is that. It's that really bright, really clever, really – you don't resent it. It's not, you know, mm. people just sticking stuff down your throat or rather down your social media feed. It's just relevant. And, you know, it's relevant to why you follow them. And I, I think advertisers that don't do that are just – Kind of it's just a, a very welcome shift to the fact that you know reality is far more interesting than well in my book it's far more interesting than anything anyone can can write you know and that, that slowly advertisers are getting that that you know you can't come up with this stuff if you explore what reality has to offer and, and don't try and completely control it and screw it and guide it and you know try and make reality what you think it should be it's far more engaging to audiences to uh, you know and it's it's a boom and if you look at this whole the whole DSLR boom and people who call these things little films these are all little this is all documentarians in training it's a fantastic you know the fantastic sort of time now people are sort of having this great training to get out there and way more access to, to cameras and rather than just doing you know slider shots of, of fruit bowls that get out there and actually do little you know little mini docos there's great training for exactly what's going to wear you know it's fantastic no no totally i sorry just doing slider shots like you know gratuitous slider shots of plants now instead of fruit but at, least at least they're outside getting some sun you had a slider you could have done that but mind you a quarter turn and you would have gone you know that's 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 five sesame seeds you would have been yeah your sesame seed was out of the frame well i will say this though that um look you hear people saying this and it is kind of trite but every time i do something outside my comfort zone like that uh, macro stuff hmm. i just go why didn't i do this bloody ages ago this is just awesome you know like you get a chance to do really interesting different cinematography without having to wait for the client to walk through the door with that script. Yeah. And of course it's so much easier to sell it when you've already got it done and you can say to someone, Hey, something like this. Mm. Well, it's also just, yeah, just good, good, it's good to learn. Even if you don't have a end result or end purpose for it, just good to explore what's possible. Mucking around with lenses is how, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff gets. Uh, well, plus it's so forgiving, right? Cause what's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no clients sort of what yeah, true. No clients standing around while you work it out. Yeah. And and I think it's it is, for knowledge, it's good to see, Mike. But I also think that's the stuff that helps you get clients because it's easier when there's not somebody else's brand in there to show them some work that you've done. Yeah. 
and have them kind of extrapolate out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff actually on there at the moment. I think a couple of major first fast food chains have done a lot of very, very slow-mo stuff and have changed part of their whole um, um, the way they shoot food because I know a few people involved who have gone out and thought, oh, we've got the studio, we've got the camera, hey, we can shoot this you know, slow-mo stuff, we've got, the, uh, we've got the tools, let's just do a little bit of a test and then bother to actually make more of it and bother to pick the phone up. Yeah, it's an interesting thing though that it's not just that it's interesting and different. The point of one of the speakers at this conference is uh, that you need to engage with the audience in the sense that you need to break through the clutter to connect with them in the first place. Like Like you don't have a chance to give them a message if their radar is screening and they could be screening because they've just seen it before and so they switch off. It could be screening because it looks like an ad, it looks too slick, they don't think it's honest so they they screen it out. Exactly right. So actually, it's not just a matter of having like... Because um, I used to get really ticked with people that did supers and they'd fuss with these supers at the end. And the analogy I used is that someone's looking out the window and you're really worried about a little bit of pen texture written on the front of the glass. And that's true. Like you could see it. If you pointed it on the glass, mm. you'd say, yep, I see that word written on the glass. But you don't focus on that. You literally focus through the glass to be on to the picture of what's going outside the window, which is kind of interesting. And that's how I thought supers were, that people would fuss with these bloody supers, but no audience member sat there staring at the bottom right corner of the screen to look at the super. They looked yeah. right past them the way you can screen out a reflection yeah. and look to what was happening in the frame. And so spending all your time worrying about the bloody super seemed to me to be completely absurd. Um, even if that's... If, that, if that's true or not, it doesn't matter if you don't even get them to look at the screen in the first place because these days they've got their iPad out and they're, yeah. you know, skipping or doing whatever. But, I mean, we have some ads on here at the moment for the Rugby World Cup and, you know, moment silence for that one. Yep. Um, but there's <laughs> some ads at the moment to do with the, um, w- with the Rugby World Cup that are just brilliant because I will literally unmute them because I want to sort of share them with someone in the room. Oh, have you seen this? This is really funny. Check this out. And you'll unmute the ad and... Is that with the farmer or something? That's with uh, Tui's new with the beer culture. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know. Yes. Yep. Beers for changing your nana's light bulb. None. Hey, she's your nana. Beer for changing your nana's light bulb while she's in the bath. One beer. One one case. <laughs> yeah. Changing the light bulb while nana's in the bath with her new partner. Six <laughs> six cases. <laughs> yes, and he's standing on the cases to change, change the light bulb. bulb. Yeah. yeah, and it's yeah. good stuff. But, you know, like uh, it's engaging and, you know, it's obviously... Slightly, There's a few of them, yes. Slightly, uh, you know, whatever. Yes, yes. The one about about uh, accidentally texting your mate, your mate's mother. Oh yeah. Why do you even have your mate's mother's <laughs> <laughs> number in your phone? Yeah. Anyway, I digress. But um, I think that there is a lot to be said about uh, about shooting stuff in an honest style, so you can just get noticed, so mm. that, and and that it has visual credibility. And oh yeah, I've said it before. The, yeah, advertising is. They're basically spending every moment to try and make in every in every decision to try and make ads not look like ads, you know. And the last and the most effective step of that is to actually not go shoot an ad, go shoot something else, go shoot a docker, go shoot a something reality, just because 
everyone's everyone sees through all the rest of the bullshit now and you sort of the last few the last the last bastion left the last sort of wall to crumble is actually the script and it's very very hard for advertising advertisers to let go of that script and to actually be open to what is possible if you don't actually do you, write anything do you put makeup on your people no so you would definitely not do you fight reflections and and like shiny sort of skin and things that people no. normally use makeup to stop no no not really so what do you put that down to that you're just really good at lighting or that they're there and you don't care mm, i don't know i think a lot of the time you never i don't know i think if they are classic, sweaty then that's the reality why are they sweaty are they been just finished milking a cow or are they in the desert number you know? one thing that runs in when you go cut yeah. in a normal ad well part of the time you're not traveling with the makeup person anyway it's just well, one less crew it's going to slow you down you, it's part it's, you know it's, it's reality you don't have makeup on a doco so but you, you would know. have makeup on a narrative like let's say you're doing a narrative show that was of a dramatic and yet realistic style i'm not talking about you know something that's uh reality tv and i'm not talking about you know something that's very obviously fake like or not fake but you know sort of sci-fi or, or you know whatever but like mm. a normal narrative that's meant to look gritty and normal you're still going to have hair and makeup there it no it depends it depends on what you're trying no, no, no. you don't like d- hair and makeup depends on, mm, not really it's a lot, a lot of the time it's a sort of sometimes it's a step that's a very simple step to non-visual step that it just gets the it's a nice little calming thing for the person who possibly is not necessarily a professional actor and they get to sit in the chair and be pampered by and half the time you might choose your makeup person based on their people soothing skills rather than their amazing ability to make the person look fantastic you know they might just be the person that takes a non-actor or a um uh, someone who's known as a personality who isn't actually um a great presenter you know so, what i mean so, so you're and calm them and, you're filming and, a woman on these one of these multi-huge mega ads that you do do you ask her to do her own makeup or do you just say do you say anything you just don't bring the subject up if Look, if makeup's needed, we get it. But if a lot of fifty percent of the time, well, it depends. If we're, if we're out sort of filming reality, if it's a you know a person on the street, if it's a sort of um, you know doorstop kind of thing. Obviously, it's never never involved. If it's uh, main, obviously we'll have it on a regular TVC, um, and I'll definitely have it if it's a um, personality celeb and that sort of stuff because they like to look good. Plus, I think as I said, I think it's just a really nice. Um, calming barrier between getting out of the limo, possibly late, the car picked them up late or whatever, and going to this you know scary thing of set, um, and they just sort of get eased into that process, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, particularly, and you know, if 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 it is a even if they're not a an actor, that any sort of woman likes to sort of feel that they've had a bit of men, obviously, almost sometimes might have a bit of an adverse effect, like they sort of suddenly feel, uh oh, hang on, this is I'm out of my comfort zone already. Um, I have makeup on, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a nice sort of soothing, calming step between uh, the the limo and the lens. Because common sense would say that without that makeup, you're going to get shiny foreheads and you're going to get shines on the nose and the cheeks. Yeah, and the- I guess the, you know it's the compl- It's a really hard question to answer. It depends on the depends on, the on, on depends on on what you're after. Yeah, but um, yeah, fifty percent of the time I'll I'll have it. But uh, if it's slowing me down or getting in the way of reality, 
or uh, you know, okay, well, or I'm not going to see the results, uh, then it's so not, let me it's ask not you this. happening. You're shooting outside, and you can orientate in any direction you want because in my perfect question, no background is any worse or better than the other. Are you deliberately angling a woman or a man differently to the primary light source for lighting across their face versus shadows? Or are you, again, not even doing that because you want it to not look like it's... It's probably just put them both in the same spot. They both they both get backlight, whatever it is. No angling of just backlight and then maybe just if it's too harsh, then a bit of bounce fill um, like in foreground. Out. Like yeah, a fold like out, flip out, sort of flexi-fill, large-ish flexi-fill, yeah. But not... Yeah, I wouldn't be um, giving them. Uh, I don't think I'd be giving them any slight, any different light, really. I think it's just yeah, they both get the backlight, and uh, yeah, no sort of side light thing. Okay, I don't know. Stuff looks pretty good. <laughs> don't come to <laughs> no, me no, for fashion lighting advice. <laughs> I don't. I don't like how you claim that it looks. Because it looks good. That's the trouble. Mm. You're like acting like you just put the tripod down in any direction and whatever they're I wearing. Know. I don't know. I think half good. of it, maybe it's the fact that it's because it's honest. I don't know. It might look good because it's honest. I don't know. And then it's not lit to... I've chosen the the, 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 the right angle and uh, got it up to exposure and, uh, you know, and it's just maybe the honesty is, is, is helping that equation. I don't know. Do you ever push the ISO to make it look more honest by making it... Slightly grainy, slightly noisy, or you like clean pictures, but no. just honest performance. Um, it is interesting now when you start, you can start to get noise back into things, and uh, often the temptation is let's let's run some you know noise removal on it and think, well, hang on a second, <laughs> leave some of it in. I've definitely left some of it in for sure. Particularly, you know, red can you know like the epic, the, the epic as you the epic as you've seen might can get reasonably noisy, reasonably early. Yes. <laughs> Stop fiddling. I was fiddling with stuff in the studio. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So, yeah, I've never... I used to, in the old days, sort of shoot, you know, if you before we had a lot of um, options, you know, run, run something through or shoot on high eight, you know, to... Um, get a uh, get a particular look but, but i think we've moved on but to get back to my first point of this podcast you can now shoot on a bloody camera that simulates a super 8 that is in your pocket yeah no i think computational i think sometimes you can just sort of i think that gets back stuff. sometimes you can just start faking you know audiences can just know when you're just trying to fake it by you know no one you know trying to shoot super 8 to make it seem real like you know as soon as everyone sees that, sees the Super 8 filter come out or the Super 8 look, you know, it's so old hat and it's just, you know, no one, you know, it's immediately feels like a bag of tricks and, and uh, you just want to stay away from the tricks. I think advertising is tricking people enough. Let's, uh, let's keep it real. Well, with that fine sentiment to end on, I want to say thank you, my friend. Thank uh, you. For being here. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for 99 episodes of the RC. And thanks, guests, for today. As thank well. you. That's yes. some excellent interviews. Thank you. Yes. Uh, um, and uh, flag what we're doing next week. So next time we're going to be coming to you, it's going to come out um, from Los Angeles with Jason via satellite, and we're going to be recording it uh, in the basking in the warm glow of the dual cannon and red announcements. So it should be. Um, somebody said we need to get new theme music for breaking breaking news um but yes we're going to try and do that as close to we can on um on the night of the whatever night it is depending on which time zone you're in november 3rd yep yes or yes lunchtime november 4th ish in 
That's true. So we're going to get that episode out as fast as we possibly can. Uh, so it may be slightly <laughs> less slick than this, and certainly I'll be drinking tequila or doing something because slightly less slick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do believe that you are implying something there. Um, Anyway, so that's coming up. I hope you'll, uh, it should be a good one. I hope you'll join us then. Um, thanks so much for being with us. And of course, uh, check out the show notes over at fxguide.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. And I'm not. See you guys. <laughs> See ya. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.